Welcome to the Debts We Owe podcast, a podcast about the ties that bind. Uh, ben Reininger here, episode 8, and today I am very much gladdened to have on one of my longtime friends, Nick Flowers. Um, Nick and I met together through the debate team at Kent State University. If you go to Kent, I highly recommend this is a plug for the debate team. And today um, I invited him on to discuss debate um, and discourse in uh, American society today. Um, you know, you hear a lot of buzzwords in the media about discourse. You know, discourse is polarized, more polarized than ever before. Americans are ideologically more far apart than ever before. Americans can't talk to each other. You know, you hear these different things. And then um, you know, also there's a lot of censorship, too, there's, there's, there's a, a, of, of different views because well, they're deemed misinformation or this, that, the other thing. And it's a very contentious area. Um um, you know, in today's society, is the very is the very idea of free speech and when people should be allowed to debate. And so, I wanted to have Nick on to discuss all these different type, types of uh, things. So, first off, I'm just going to ask Nick, uh, uh, what got you into debate? And um, I also wanted to ask, you know, Nick has a hobby of debating neo Nazis online for fun. If you would look at the Discord chats he belongs to, you'd think he was some alt right person, but in fact, he's not. Um, but yeah, so what got you into the habit of debating and then also debating neo-Nazis? Um, I mean, it started like, I wouldn't say, end, end of high school was when I started getting into just politics in general. And it wasn't like the good type of politics. It was like, I'm going to read the first headline and meme about voting for Trump in uh, 2016. Like, that's how I first got into politics. And then it just kind of uh, evaluated, like escalated through uh, just like, media that I read like I watched some videos on just like certain things and then eventually after watching videos I'm like yeah, I kind of want to learn about this stuff. So I learned about my own politics and at one point I got into just debate with a friend that I disagree with and I enjoyed it so uh, it all started with me just liking debate and just wanting to see if I was correct and just going to prove my ideas in like discourse between people and that it so happened that those I disagreed with the most were that of uh, neo-nazis and I thought it was this weird idea where if I go in, and I think at the beginning it was more for my own like uh, selfish reasons, where I was just going in against every like thing, everything that would oppose what I believe, and seeing if my ideas would hold up, or at least to me if they would hold up. So I went in with not necessarily an open mind, but to see how well my ideas compared against theirs. And I guess the reason I chose like the extreme far right was because I. I, the more I think about it, my, my ideas have changed over, changed over the time into why I do it now versus why I did it then. And uh, I think back then it was more, well, these guys are obviously wrong, so I just want to prove my ideas are right. It's low-hanging fruit. Exactly. exactly. That was the idea. Like, I can prove these guys are wrong very easily, so it will make – like, I'll be ready for anything like this. And then it kind of turned into, like, a weird idea of – like, like today, uh, I, I went on this weird, like, journey where I started in, like, these neo-Nazis, and then I went to actually more left people, like, communist people that were farther left than me. I started debating them about, like, practicality and, like, this idea, and then it turned into libertarians, and then I, I, I started debating them. And then the more I debated, the more I learned about other things, like philosophy. Like, I got really into philosophy and started researching everything, and then eventually I got to the point where the reason I'm debating now, at least, when I go into these forums, I'm actually going in to understand their positions. I'm going in and going, this person obviously, you know, when I say I'm, I'm against racism, I know why I'm against racism. I believe that with my whole heart. 
And then I hear these people that are pro-racism, that are actually racist. They hate, like, all these minorities. And I want to understand why it is they are like that. And I go in with an open mind, not necessarily to think they're right, but to understand where they're coming from and where I can maybe point out a flaw in where they're coming from, hoping that maybe they'll see it soon. Yeah, because, I mean, it's one thing to um, know, to feel very confident that you're right about somebody and know that somebody else is completely wrong. But even when somebody is completely wrong, when people believe awful things, like, you know, that some races are um, superior to others and so on and so forth, you, it's important to know precisely why they believe that, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's self-serving. You know, if you're a white guy and you want to believe, this, uh, you know, black people are less, then that could, like, boost your own ego in some way, mm -hmm. right? But then there's also that element of, too, I think, like, a lot of young, lonely white men in their basement you know, on the, 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 on the, in, on these, in these isolated communities. Also just like, like the idea of being edgy and contrarian. And so there's just like the idea, like you don't want to face the truth. The studies show that there are IQ differences and so on and so forth. And they even like exempt themselves from the idea that they're self-serving by saying, well, I think white people are dumber than Asians, you know, mm. and then that serves, um, and that makes it them reinforces everything they believe because they right. think that yeah, they think they put Asians at the top of the hierarchy. A lot of white supremacist groups do that, in fact. Mm -hmm. But and, and they talk about just the idea of like, oh, you know, it's not that I think I'm we're better than everyone. I just feel like we should all be separate. And uh, it, it's 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 a weird thing to comprehend because at one point, you know, I was you know extremely different than the views I have today. And I just like to think the reason I was like that was because of the stuff I consumed and what I believed. And I feel like if if I can change my perspective, there might be some people that, like, when I go into these conversations, you know, I go in, I, right now I go in with this, uh, under, this idea to understand what they're saying and point out flaws. If I get someone that obviously will not engage with anything, I just block them and move on. I'm like, this person is just actually not worth time. I've attempted it. And then once I realize they are no longer engaging, I'm like, well, this person will, cannot be convinced, so I will move on to the next person. But I feel like there might be some people out there that's – and I've had a few of them where they ex believe these extreme right like right things, like these things far, super on the right, past the normal conservative, past whatever. And then I go in and have a conversation and point out flaws, and even though I don't bring them over to the left, I bring them away from the extremely far right. And just because I know I came from a position where I believe stupid things, and I feel like I can help people – also not believe stupid things, right? Right, and I think there's no shame in having believed, believed in stupid things in the past. You know, some people, like, they feel this sense that they, like, need to absolve themselves of this, like, guilt, right? That they feel terrible um, about the, the past things they need, and so they need to kind of almost do a penance. When we're all, you know, uh, functions of our environment, I mean, I don't know. Exactly. I think it's like you should do good things whether or not you feel that there's um, like a, that, that you need to have, have a like, like whether or not it's a penance for having a bad thing. You should just do good things because good things are are, are what you should try to do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, what's interesting, uh, this kind of the whole idea of like it's interesting, the whole um, process of going from believing one thing and to believing another and like for some people, that's a painful process, and it, d it obviously depends on whether, um, on like how emotionally attached you are to a certain concept, mm -hmm. right? Like when it comes to the proposition, IPAs are terrible, right? And like you have, but they, like all you say, all IPAs are terrible. But then you drink one IPA that you like, and then you're like, oh well, that claim is false. Not all IPAs are terrible. That that's not gonna hurt, or like you know, 
I think or the capital of um you think that the capital of Texas is Dallas when it's not it's Austin is, is, is if I recall yeah um, let me do that yeah so like like you're not attached to where the capital of Texas is you're not attached you're not attached to it's not you're not emotionally attached to what is or isn't a good beer but you are definitely emotionally attached on the question of whether God exists and there's an afterlife because you put a lot of emotional expectation on that. You're definitely and, and it, depending on your position in society too, that's also going to really affect um, how, like how easily you can be convinced. It kind of reminds me of that Upton Sinclair quote that you can't convince some like somebody uh, of something who's uh, somebody of something when their salary depends on them not understanding it, right? Yeah. Similarly, it's like not just salary, but whole emotional expectations, right? To the normal average Joe working at a McDonald's or working at, you know, as a dentist, it doesn't matter your income, like a non-political job, the question of do tax cuts, um, did the 2017 tax cuts um, create more growth, um, economic growth, that question, fundamentally, like whatever side the findings come out on doesn't really matter to the average McDonald's worker or dentist. But if you work for the Cato, the Cato Institute or the Progressive Policy Institute and you have these, you know, right economic right, economic left think tanks, that question really does matter to you emotionally because you've spent years fighting for tax cuts or against tax cuts, particularly on wealthy individuals. Um well, in, or all individuals, but including wealthy, the bulk of it, you know, that's going to matter. I think your position really does matter as to whether you have what mindset you have. Mm -hmm. So speaking of changing your mind, have you yeah. ever gone into one of these online debates? I know you typically seek out extremists in different yeah. ideologies, but I'm wondering, like, you know, but still you've debated a lot of people. Can you recall a time you've debated somebody and had your mind changed, like, pretty soon after the debate uh yeah um so when it came to having my mind change and i think what you brought up about when you're like charged to believe a certain way or you have your entire life or even with the money aspect where your job resides about you believing this one thing um it's a lot harder to change but for me it was easier as i didn't have anything riding on me changing my idea just the the concept of trying to be correct and you have to swallow that pride of i was wrong and i feel like that itself is actually extremely hard for a lot of people to just uh, acknowledge that you're wrong um i had a few times when it came to less you're less with the uh the very far right my my ideas have never really changed on that i've been convinced of some things that um i didn't know before and are, are people on the right uh the very far right sometimes they do bring like studies or stuff that is true and i'm like wow that's something i I, uh, I I didn't know, but it still doesn't change like why they are wrong. You know, they can, right. you, sometimes you can bring statistics to certain things and go like, look at this statistic. And I'm like, wow, that's that. Wow, okay, this is a, this is a study that's been done that is correct. But that doesn't mean you can get to the conclusions with it. So I've been uh -huh. informed through them, uh, but I've never had my mind changed by the alt right. But when it came to libertarians and uh, the the left and more communists and socialists, I've had my mind changed by both of them in some instances. When I became um. I was very like a laissez-faire capitalist for a bit. I talked to some socialists and I got the idea of like, wow, you know, like this under like a framework that I use, uh, I, the, the, like the idea of like a, a, a libertarian socialism, like this idea of like uh, uh, worker cooperatives in a free market economy, right? It, it's kind of mm -hmm. like this weird idea of you want to enforce worker cooperatives, but you also want a free market, but you also don't want like this 
like this weird idea of uh, 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 CEOs making way too much. Like I, I thought that was actually a really good idea. You run into some problems, you know, with the actual plausibility of it, which is what I ended yeah. up having a problem with. Mm -hmm. And then same thing with like uh, with capitalists. Like I talked to a lot of an like anarcho-capitalists, like extremely far-right capitalists. And uh, my mind got changed on a lot of things when it came to economics because uh, I wasn't too into economics. I got more into it after I talked to them because that's really all they care about. And I was able to mix like uh, my ideas of like extreme like uh, liberalism. Like I, I, I like the idea of uh, utilitarianism and then also just the concept of how to bring about the most amount of people being happy with a good economy. That's like the basis for people being happy and having a good economy. And sometimes uh, laissez-faire capitalism is a great way to get a good economy. But this also comes with problem, problems that can be solved, but it's the idea of which problems uh, should we try to solve and which ones can we not solve and then figure out the best mixing of the two almost. Because I feel like with how today's society is, it isn't just a, we want this utopia to exist. It's more along the lines of, we want a semblance of what we can get from both sides that would make everyone uh, prosper. Right. So you said um, that, that anarcho-capitalists online convinced your... Um changed your mind on certain economic issues. Yes. I know, like, you, you've mentioned, like, Ludwig von Mises before we, like, talked about, like, because that, that, that's kind of like the – Mises and Rothbard, kind of like the economic faces behind those people. It's kind of mm -hmm. like their version of Marx, as Marx is to communists and socialists. Mm -hmm. What did they – what did they tell you? that? What, what specific issues did your mind change on in that regard? I'm curious because I actually don't know this. Yeah, uh, my biggest one, because like yeah. it's my biggest one was the idea of like the, a minimum wage, like the concept of if a minimum wage doesn't exist, like we ha like if you have a strong enough labor force where they're able to enforce the demands onto the companies, I feel like not having a minimum wage can be a good thing. So that way, smaller businesses can get up in the world without having to pay a minimum. Maybe they can go under and then work their way up, but also big businesses won't underpay. And that's like that can be achieved when you have extremely strong unions. Like when we look at like the Slovakian countries where like. Uh, where they don't have a minimum wage. They have such strong unions that they can argue for higher wages and a living wage without necessarily laws making it so, so that way yeah. smaller businesses can rise up. Mm -hmm. I feel like that convinced me, but I feel like, again, I'm still for a minimum wage in the United States because I feel like we're not at that point where we could dis disevolve, to like get rid of it and everyone, everything would be okay. I feel like we would run into problems in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, min cause the whole idea with the minimum wage is like it's a ban on selling your labor um, for for less than a certain price, which that's it's, a, it's an interesting way of looking at it. Meaning that like if let's say if you are not productive enough to produce for any company out there more than twelve dollars an hour, then but you could produce nine dollars an hour for somebody if the minimum wage is twelve. Well, too bad you can't sell your labor, right? But the reality is most people, for vast majority of businesses, can produce twelve dollars exactly. an hour of economic output or more. And, you know, the <coughs> demand for labor is pretty inelastic at, at these different firms. Um, but the end, there's a certain point you set the minimum wage high enough, you do see substantial decreases in employment. The, you know, you can't set it to $40 an hour. There's a limits to these things. There's trade-offs to these things. And, um, you know, yeah, it does – it is harder to get a business up and running when you have to start paying a worker at a certain wage versus if you could just, like – Pay somebody else for less, you know, so on and so forth. Mm. But um, it, it's like this kind of catch-all where yeah. you, because in most areas, like a minimum wage is fine. Like I think most areas a minimum wage would be good. But like it's the catch-all of 
for those that don't need a minimum wage, like if you have strong enough unions, it wouldn't exist. And then for those niche cases, those extremely like small instances of a business in an area can open up, supply a living wage for that person for their, or their worker or whatever, even if it's not a living wage, for what they can pay so they do not have a lot of money and they're able to get this person and someone is willing to as if there is a lot of area or jobs in the area. So taking at least a lower wage in comparison to no wage is in fact better. So they would be better off even though it, it below the living standard. Like I feel like that can be a beneficial because maybe then the business would increase, but it's extremely a niche case. So I don't think it's that applicable right. today. And like just my, the concept of like, hey, if you cannot pay, like say we have the, uh, the, 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 the average rent of every single individual area. Like if we could divide up a minimum wage by like geo, geographic locations, I feel like that's the best. It'd be too, it's too much work. It's, it would be impossible to get done, but that'd be the best. Like if Vermont and New York should never say that, uh, that would that would cause a lot of other economic distortions, though. And so, and there's reasons New York is m more expensive than Vermont. Of like, course, it's not an economic injustice that rent costs more in these cities. But oh, you yeah, know, I don't think it is. It's yeah. just a, it's just a simple fact. Like that's I don't know because like that that's an interesting that kind of like reminds me of the question as to whether like like people go around saying housing should be treated as a right and not a commodity. One of the problems I have with that is like, well, what amounts of housing is a right? Clearly living like there's there's degrees in how good a quality of rent you could have in your like in living. Um, and so at what point, what is the bare minimum? First off, if you're going to say housing is a right, we're well, not going to say that. Obviously, you don't mean that like everybody having a gigantic house is a right. That's not realistic, right? And you and markets do serve a good purpose in having some places be more expensive because why is New York City more expensive? There's more economic opportunities there, right? There's more stuff going on there. It's a more desirable area for a lot of people to live. It's not desirable for me to live, but a lot of other people, mm -hmm. it's very desirable to live. Yeah. Um, and so the higher prices like serve somewhat of a role of saying, look, the people that most want to live here, um, you, you have to pay a lot higher price, right? And so it, it rations – Somewhat based on desire, but that, but you know, markets don't totally do that because, well, people have different incomes and different amounts of wealth, right? So when you do rations like who has apartments in New York City versus Vermont, you're rationing not just based off of somebody's want of to live in this area, you know, and how hard they are to work for. There's also just some, you know, inequalities people have to begin with, great inequalities, and so. I don't know. Uh, you get deep enough into this stuff. I just feel like there's just so many different paradoxes that you can't, you can't get everything that you'd exactly want. Exactly, you know? and that's that. I feel like that's actually a, a, a huge thing in just all of like decision making when it comes to like politics is these paradoxes of if you do one thing, something else will come to that that will either just like give you the idea to not do it or like it, it's finding a balance of like in between this paradox what can i get without you will never completely solve it but what can i get that would be a good middle ground where we will no longer have this like problem it, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of hard things and the, even just the concept of the reason new york is so much more money is because all these people want to go there which i, I like I feel like it's, it's valid. Like the, the reason it costs so much more, that's a, it, it's fair reason. It's understandable and you can't really do anything about it. But I feel like if there was a way to incentivize like going to other places, like if we built up other cities, like if we made somewhere in Minnesota desirable, you know, that, that could, it'd be huge. That way, the reason like these cities like Las Vegas and stuff are, and Florida are so populated and so expensive to live in is because immigrants 
like immigrants and even people in the U.S., this is like the thing that immediately pops in their head. They, they're looking for economic opportunity. They know the name Las Vegas. They know that there is a bunch of people there and a bunch of jobs, but not maybe not a bunch of jobs. Well, there's a bunch of jobs, but not a bunch of available jobs. So it's this weird idea of how can we mix, how can, how can the, uh, the U.S. Um, increase a incentive to go other places? And I feel like it's a lot hard, especially with like the balance of powers between state and federal. Like it's, it's a weird tightrope to walk, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. I don't want to go – we can go more into political issues throughout this podcast, but I want to yeah. keep on the subject of debate itself. Mm-hmm. And that kind of wants me – brings me to the next – that wants me – now I'm going to bring up the next topic is, you know, like, when is it moral to debate a certain person on a public stage? It's one thing to debate people on a Discord chat, because yeah. that, doesn't, that doesn't really amplify um, the voice of either side in that debate on a Discord chat. But when you invite somebody to debate at Kent State University inside the Kiva, you're giving them a stage, a seat, an audience. When you're inviting somebody to debate on a podcast, and you, like, let's say you weren't, my, you weren't my podcast, you had a gigantic audience, that gives a platform to somebody, right? And so there's, there's a lot of interesting moral debates as to whether – when it's moral to let somebody on to debate you, right? Because on the one hand, if you, let's say you had a white supremacist on and debated them, one hand, you, you could debunk a lot of their ideas, right? And, um, you know, and, and really kind of like break them down, right? And maybe some of their audience and followers could watch that debate and be convinced. But then there's also the element of just having them on kind of makes their um, beliefs seem more acceptable. Um, you know, that's just the connotation. You have somebody on to debate. You're giving you're, – you're, you are respecting them. You're respecting – you have views and information and values that should be respected and listened to, right? And by letting them on to debate, you put their ideas in what's called in politics the Overton window, that window of ideas – that are acceptable to debate and talk about. And so um, just by having a Richard Spencer, a white supremacist on, you're kind of like making him seem more acceptable, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, where do you draw the line? And um, that's the question I ask you. What, what makes somebody qualify as moral to, as, as um, acceptable to have on a debate on a platform that you yourself own or have control over? Yeah. Um... So for that, it is a really good question because I think that's what a lot of people like when you see – and I, it's it's so complicated because there's so many factors that come in. And to me, I feel like the biggest uh, contributor to whether or not it is moral to bring someone on is I feel like the person who would be uh, bringing them on and their knowledge on a certain topic. If Because I feel like I, I don't want to come out with the idea that there is uh, discussions that – you cannot have. I, I, I am of the idea where any discussion, no matter how uh, controversial or emotionally charged it may be, I feel like it should always be able to be discussed and, and uh, brought up in like a, it, a discourse. Even, it's, even, one, it's one thing to say that you should, there shouldn't be discussions that can't be had. That's a question that, of free speech. Right? I, of, I believe uh, completely in free speech, but it's, it's, it's a different to say, is it a question that should be had? You know. Yeah. Like nobody – I think the, the philosopher, Slovenian philosopher Slavo Žižek like talked about this I think one time in one of the lectures he gave that he was ba- – like it was basically something like in defense of dogma, the idea of dogma being dogma. Questions, beliefs, yeah. beliefs you cannot question 
And one of the things is like, do we really want people to de- be debating whether rape is moral, right? Mm-hmm. Is that a discussion you want to have? How does it affect rape victims? How does that, you know, it, 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 it's, a, it, it, it's a stupid discussion. Even if somebody believes in that, I wouldn't want to engage with that person on that. So, but yeah, what continue what you were saying though. Flesh out your idea. Yeah, uh, I guess I, the 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 factor I would look into is um, and it, it's hard to gauge. That's the problem. So you'd have to like analyze like how you as the individual should go about it if you had a large platform and you had someone that believed say rape was good. How, like, what would be the idea to uh, debate them? And it's how many people's minds would I change if I had this debate versus how many minds might be changed if I had this debate. If you go into a conversation with an audience of 10,000 and you invite on a single person who has the idea that rape is good and that is it, it, I would probably say that is something you should not do as you have the ability to convince one person while they have the ability to convince 10,000. But in 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 a realm of if I have 10,000 individuals and then there's someone who believed rape was good and they had an audience of, say, 1,000 people, I would be com- more confident enough in my ability to disprove and uh, show the uh, complications of their thoughts where I believe I would change more minds than they would change of, uh, for their minds. And mm-hmm. I feel like that that is the distinction of when you should and should not do something, depending on what you believe is correct. Like. Uh, it, it, uh, the the best thing I believe uh, that could be done is a private conversation. I feel, feel like for most things, uh, depending on the topic, if it is extremely heated and emotional and controversial, it should be done in private uh, because I don't think necessarily that it needs to be public, right? You don't want to, like, I feel like for either side, even if you are like a neo-Nazi who believes like races are, like they're superior, they're superior races. Like if you believe that and you're going against somebody that just doesn't believe that, you'd also be worried if you truly and wholeheartedly believe this, you'd be worried that they would convince some of your audience. So I would feel like two popular figures would have just, it would be best if two popular figures could have a conversation in private so that way none of their audience would necessarily be, uh, have their minds changed. And then also if like you went in with a good faith, that's how every conversation should be, a good faith discussion on being open to, I could be wrong and they could be right. And then you meet at a conclusion like that's that's that that would be the best way to draw it out, and then if you were able to change their mind, they would then tell their audience, and it would be just you'd avoid any complications. That way, the writer, the, not the right, but the one that the, the conversation that won the debate, the one that has changed the other's mind, would be the one to be spread to their audience, and that's how like that's how a discussion should happen. There should be this this uh, coming together, unless. Uh, like there should be this coming together of understanding. Wow, there are flaws in my position, and so you should. This goes into like more conversations of knowledge of like, if you don't know why you believe something, you should not be espousing it. And if somebody, if somebody is able to uh, dismantle your reasoning for why you believe something, there is no way you should continue to believe what you do. Even if like you see a random like uh, SJW that goes onto the street and then some like race realist who is super like educated on the matter comes up to them and then they completely destroy all their arguments and there's no, uh, there's no semblance of like any way the SJW could still be correct. Like in in a perfect world, like that would be the SJW would have their mind changed and then go to that, which is awful because we like to imagine these people are wrong and I believe they are wrong. And then the, eventually, if everyone partook in those discussions, the correct answer, or at least the most uh, logically sound answer, would be brought about. And uh, just the the so willingness of people to go into arguments not 
uh, completely debunked and they show that their logic is not sound and then continue to believe what they do, I think it's just a fundamental problem with how like the US and other citizens operate where we just don't know why we believe things and we refuse to have our minds change about anything, which well, is just pretty problematic. And I think there's a lot of elements to this. It kind of reminds me of something I was going to bring up earlier, like um, this book, this really good book called, called The Scout Mindset by Julia Gallup. She's this like philosophy YouTuber. And it's about like, you know, basically encourages people to not have this attitude toward truth where or, or discourse where they're trying to prove that which they believe and defend it. That's what she calls the soldier mindset. And she says that's what most humans have is the soldier mindset, T like, 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 you know, having the beliefs that are core to them and looking to defend them at all costs. And she says that preferable to that is the scout mindset, where the scout mindset just simply is, I want to see what's out there. Mm -hmm. And I want to know what's out there and understand as rationally as possible and be completely fearless at the proposition of me being wrong. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. Like, I read a review of that book. And um, somebody that knew Gallup personally saying that, like, she would be around Gallup and friends and they would just tell each other, well, you're wrong and here's why. And everybody would be just super cool about it. Like, they wouldn't even yeah. be offended at the idea of just somebody telling you to, to your face, well, you're wrong about that, you know. And that's mm -hmm. interesting. I think that's kind of one of the shortfalls of debate as opposed to discourse is debate is fundamentally a game where people are trying to prove a side that they start out with going yeah. into the debate. Um, it doesn't actually um, – it isn't the best way of finding truth because that each side is, com is not committed to some ideal of truth that's out there. They're, they're, they're committed to the pre-existing ideals of the values and worldviews that they come in with. I think debates are useful, I think, in informing the public at least of what people's positions are, what the arguments for different positions are, and then so people can empathize and understand that. But in terms of changing people's minds, I mean, debate can, debates can kind of have a terrible track record. Like you look at um, presidential debates, there is no – I mean, I, I think this is a big, broad claim. I, maybe there's not no evidence, but there's – from what I've read – there's very little evidence in like the empirical political science literature that the outcomes of presidential debates influence presidential election results at all, like yeah. a single bit. I, I can't imagine they do because I think this, that's what it goes into like uh, are debates good in a public fashion like for platforming individuals like – a debate, honestly, just to get a blanket statement, no, because as you said, a debate is this fundamental idea of you, a position and a position go against each other, and there will be no concessions as to if which position is better. It is simply two people arguing a side, even if like you, if you're, you're, you're under the mindset of no matter what, I'm going to be dogmatic and my side is correct. And that is the process going into any debate. And that's why if we want to platform, honestly, there shouldn't be any platforms of debates. It should, like you said, it should be platforms of discussion, but the problem is just you know, discussion is a lot less entertaining, and I feel like entertainment factor is a big, big well, uh, part. And, and there's certain fields of human life where you can't really have a discussion. Like, think about presidential campaigns. Mm -hmm, a exactly. presidential campaign, the whole modern world is insane. I'll start that. that <laughs> but, I completely agree. But, like, the mo like presidential ca campaigns involve billions of dollars, billions of dollars in signs and advertisements and phone calls and conventions and this, that, the other thing. But by the time a person comes far enough into their careers that they're on the presidential debate stage, 
and they want to win power over a country, mm-hmm. they, they don't want to have a discussion. They're, you can't just sit down and say, all right, like you can expect – I mean Joe Biden and Donald Trump is one thing. Let's go back in time to Romney and Obama who were seemingly more reasonable, respectful, quiet – you know what? Quiet, that's, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Just kind of more chill people. Yeah. Um, you know, can you really have expected Romney Obama to sit down and like have truly an actual discussion, an actual good faith discussion, and say, "Well, here's why I believe this, Barack," you know, and here's why this I believe this, um, Mitt, you know, and you know, and like, like, like and I, because I value this, that, the other thing, and th- I've looked at these studies, and you could never imagine one of them nodding, be like, you know, I never heard about that study. I might have to look into that and change my position, because that makes them look weak. Right? Yeah. And politics, it's about winning. And you get that far in, you're committed to winning. That you can't expect anything else but a debate. And I would argue that the presidential debates are still good and so far that uh, for a couple of reasons. Even if they don't even affect the election results, mm-hmm. I still think they're worthy to spend some spend time on them because um like because they at least like document the historical experience, a lot of the positions and beliefs that people have at a certain specific time, and it's informative, right? It doesn't change my people are committed to their tribes, and the discussions really aren't that good, but the positions that come out of it, that in and of itself is useful. And that's why I think debates are sometimes good. In the case of presidential debates, that would be one of them. Yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, my standard, I came up before this podcast with what my standard would be, whether I want to have somebody debate me or anybody on a platform that I would own. And I guess the standard would be, um, like, they'd have to meet either one of two criteria. Either criteria A would be that, like, that like they have a wide enough like following in the country that giving them the platform and encountering their ideas really doesn't like let any more genie out of the bottle. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. the, like, like the public is already totally exposed to this one view. It already has entered the Overton window. You're not bringing anything new into the Overton window like white supremacy or full-blown communist revolution. You're mm-hmm. just um, – you know, you're just – it's already in the Overton window. But even if you believe it's terrible and wrong, it's fine to debate it because it, it's in everybody's minds, right? It's like the idea of like was the 2020 election stolen? Yeah. Um, are vaccines dangerous and hurting people? Are, um, you know, these things, you know, like I would be okay with debating on a platform because I don't think it, it really like, me, like, like, like legitimizes it any more than it's already made legitimate by the bait, by the big institutional forces that have legitimized it. Like, you know, Fox News, Republican Party, other things, um, you know, and so having those people on, that's not, that, that's fine. So it's already, if it's already major, like mainstream enough. Like anything that is mainstream, no matter how horrible it is, I'm not. I'm fine with it being debated. Um, and then the other criteria would be, if not main, it would have to be that like both sides in the debate have some some moral argument that can be sympathized with. And that's each owner of a platform can have a different idea of what should be morally sympathized with. But at least. Anybody that I'd want to have on a platform, I would want both sides to have like values, beliefs, or facts that I find kind of morally sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the idea of, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, like the idea of 
Like, for example, like I, I disagree with the idea of like abolishing the war on poverty and making all poverty programs be done at either the state level or by private entities, right? All yeah. having them control poverty only because the federal government can relieve a lot of suffering there. That just simply doesn't get done at the state levels so with that utilitarian angle on it. Mm-hmm. But I can sympathize with somebody who says, well, like how can 535 people ever represent 330 million people? The federal government has way too much power. Uh, we need to give power way back to the states. Like somebody that says, like in the United States originally was conceived of as like, well, like 50 different like, – well, that wasn't 50 to start, but different like actual states. You yeah. know, like people would think of themselves as from Ohio or from Virginia, not from the United States. And, there, you know, the, the, the states – the federal government did infrastructure and, and national defense, but it, it, everything else was handled at the state level. Somebody that believes that things should be, still be like that, I find some of those arguments – I sympathize with them. Sympathetic. You can empathize with them. Even though I don't agree with them or the the ultimate conclusion, I empathize with the arguments, and so I'll have them on, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so that's kind of like it would be one or the other, and that's would be why I would want to um, debate Mm -hmm. somebody. I mean, it seems like your argument's more so you debate somebody um, with the goal of um, changing their people's minds, and so. The idea is it's like this utility – from what I understood your position, it's like this utilitarian position that like as many pe- – like I want to maximize the number of people that have the right opinion. Yeah. And that is the decision um, – uh, that, that is the moral impetus that underlies whether I host a specific debate. Yes. Uh, I, I do feel like what you – so even though I feel like that what you said is like a good criteria to have as to why, I would honestly I – w- I would actually disagree with it. Uh, it's the idea of like you can only debate that which you morally empathize with, they can understand, and the, the so like I think it's fine. Like, I think it's a good reason for like most people. Like it's it's well, I would say understand. I well I would say either something mm-hmm. that's my, my either. criteria it's either, was yeah. either something you can morally sympathize with or, or that which is already mainstream. Yes, because if something's mainstream and bad, I think it's mm-hmm. okay to argue against it to try and get people off that train. But my argument would be that if it isn't mainstream. And you don't find it morally sympathetic, you're mm-hmm. probably going to do more harm than good, harm than, good. than hosting the debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, I, I at least personally wouldn't make the decision of hosting the debate on my platform. But yeah. I also don't believe in any like centralized institution having it any um, like, be, be good at all and being able to say what is what can and cannot be debated. You know. Right, and so I, I, I put that up to each person that holds a platform. To decide what to do with the platforms that they have. Anyway. I, I get, yeah, so like the reason, like, so I think literally my only criteria would be uh, the, what I like the utilitarian aspect. And the problem is the reason I don't, like, there are things I, it is almost impossible to be morally sympathize with. There are some positions I do find impossible to morally sympathize, sympathize with. And I think I had the same uh, answer as you probably like a year ago where I believe that. But then I went through like this, uh, th- these conversations and like learning and, and uh, researching about. A specific topic that um like in philosophy that when i found it out it was like it took all my preconceived notions of like what i believed and things that i understood and it just completely like i completely threw it away it 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 made me like question everything and it made me it made it so much harder to even to comprehend my own thoughts and why i do things like what i what should Mm -hmm. be done 
And so I'm under the mindset of even though, like, if I can't morally sympathize with someone like this, I understand why you do not uh, debate people. I understand why others don't debate people. But if uh, to me it was if I can get my my like foundation rocked so hard where I change essentially everything that I like believed in, then it is worth it to even though I as of now cannot possibly conceive of say like a neo-Nazi's argument. I cannot can I cannot conceive how someone can morally get to that position. It is still the concept of you know. If I am correct in my beliefs, then they will not be correct. And I will find flaws in their arguments, and I will find these things. But if I am not, and they find flaws in my argument, if they find flaws, like, no matter how abhorrent the position is, I have come to the conclusion recently that truth, sometimes not even truth, just the, the concept of being, uh, have, being incorrect or having an unknown it is should be valued more over comfort where i i would be comfortable as, as a utilitarian wanting everyone to be happy i would be comfortable with that if that was just it but if somebody came to me and like for, like say there was an objective meaning to everything and they came to me and said yeah it turns out like egoism the objective moral standard you should be egoistic you should not care about anybody else to me i'm like that that is so such an uncomfortable realm but it is correct and sometimes I feel like I, you have to find not even balance. I feel like it is better to be correct than to be incorrect and be comfortable. And that's like something that I've, I've weighed on and like why I feel like even though I, it's almost impossible to morally sympathize with something, I'm able to because I'm going under the impression of I feel as if I'm correct, so I'm confident that I will convince them. But if they are correct, someone should hear them out because if right. they are, then – you know, if then they, they mm. like this, I, I it's it's hard because even if like it's all societies against you, if you're correct, I feel like that should be the espoused position. Yeah, like, I would know. just yeah, I would just say that there are certain circumstances where having someone on, well, I would I would I would I guess well, I'm ha having a debate on a platform is different than having a debate. I will talk mm. with literally anyone. anyone. Yeah, me too. I like I, but, I would talk, but like yeah, but it's just. I think I don't know. I think there's I, you learn about the mere exposure effect in psychology mm -hmm. that people like something just by being exposed to it, and that's everything to do with like with like different fruits. Like if you're around um, cantaloupe all the time, the human the, the human psychological bias is you will like cantaloupe more as time goes goes by. Um, if you're, but same thing with relationships. Like you, if you let's say you're single and you see like the same woman at a coffee shop every week. You'll start to there's a there's a higher probability you'll find her more attractive and she'll find you more attractive, purely mm -hmm. from the mere exposure effect. It's a documented effect in psychology. Yeah, no, I completely like. I think when it comes to like letting white supremacists on a platform to talk, um, the mere exposure of seeing them all the time and hearing them all the time makes them seem more reasonable. More that's reasonable, just, yeah. That's just the human bias. Um, and that's and that's the cost I think associated with having someone on a platform. Yeah. The only extent to which I disagree with this, there's a, and it's hard to know right where to draw the line. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, yeah, like exactly who is mainstream enough? Like, I would debate if I had a big platform and could have Steve Bannon on to debate me. I would debate Steve Bannon, but not Richard Spencer. At where precisely in between Steve Bannon and Richard Spencer do I draw a line? Yeah. That's a tough question, but I do believe. 
the in a line being drawn that I would not a line can exist. You don't know exactly where to place it, but it exists somewhere. Yeah, right? and in my at least in my decision but, as to what like, I would do with the platform. Same with like I think we agree like with my line. It is simply um, if I had this conversation. A good way to look at it is if I have this conversation. Um, there's two. Uh, there's two things. I'll, the only conversation I'll have. There's two things that'll happen. I will convince more people that my side is correct in like a net total. I will convince more than people that believe this thing. And then also, I will have my mind changed, and then I will uh, switch to that position. That is like the process. In my opinion, every conversation I would be having if I had a platform, those are the two options. I will either convince more people of my position, or I will uh, switch my mindset. And that would be the 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 under that would be the understanding to every debate I go into. That mm-hmm. those can be the only two options. So the the pre the only prerequisite is, if I am correct. Would I switch more positions than he than the, the opposite person would take over to their position? And that is how I would gauge it because in if that's the case, if I make a decision with that as my basis, to me, only a positive will happen if that right. happens. And that's why I do it. Only a positive will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's the uh, this opportunity that I take a debate and then I still believe what I do. I just argue it horribly and then more people are concerned. So you have to would... believe yourself as a good arguer. Yeah. Yeah. To to mm-hmm. I just don't think debates in general, like I've mentioned with presidential debates, but debates in general often change people's minds. They do change some people's minds, but it's a very small minority. That I see debates mostly as a kind of game, an informative exercise, an intellectual exercise. Um, That, yeah, I just don't really, it's not even, even if you're a really good arguer, it's hard to change people's minds about a lot of things. It depends on the thing, right? Like, if it's um, a debate as to whether um, the Fed should create, like, should buy um, billions more in bonds, do more quantitative easing, and lower long-term interest rates, or the Fed should, like, you know, there's a certain number of people who would have a very strong opinion on that, you know, libertarians, central bankers, um, you know, left like you know left-wing monetary reformers you know people who are into that shit but people who aren't into that shit like could be convinced by that debate because they're not like like we said earlier they're not emotionally attached to it as other people are emotionally attached to it yeah um i feel like that's that's something that has to weigh into like for my example for what uh, what how i would because when you're debating a person who holds an extreme position they they and their audience will be entrenched in that position so like it would have to be a significant ability of difference because it is more likely that someone who say i had 10,000 people and i had a position such as racism is bad you'll have more people who like are like yeah that's fine but they're not like it's not this extreme position that they have to think super hard about anyone on the right if you believe that say like jews are bad you will have this entrenched entrenched position that i have spent so much time thinking about this and it's so much harder to convince that yeah person. people so who believe that jews are bad are more informed on the debate than people who believe that Jews are good exactly. because it when you have the minority radical position you spend more time um immersing yourself in it it's also just the fact of like conspiracy like if you have someone who believes in conspiracy it is almost impossible to change their mind because conspiracies are like on the literal foundation there is no evidence so if someone can believe something with no evidence and simply just like uh correlations that might point to something then everything can be excused away. So that's why, like, also a question that I always ask at the beginning of any debate when it comes to, like, changing someone's mind, I say, is it possible 
for your mind to be changed. And if they say no, more often than not, like, it's just not worth having a conversation. Like, I have family members who believe, like, the vaccine is being, well, and the boosters are being as, like, used as a slow, gradual population control, control. device. Mm-hmm. There is not enough evidence to, like, there's mm-hmm. anywhere out there that actually convinced them into that. It, mm-hmm. it, it, like, there's some Bill Gates quotes where he worries <laughs> about overpopulation while simultaneously um, funding a lot of stuff for the vaccine. He had some, like, gaffe where he accidentally said, like, the vaccine can help us with overpopulation or something, whatever we actually, you know, um, he says that, you know, but it was like you know, something he misspoke as I understood it. Um, but like how much, pa- like, like, is there a logical series here? Like that I believe these entities have this power and this incentive and they were able to bribe officials and scientists at the CDC, FDA, Johnson, Pfizer, and Moderna to all coordinate this in conjunction while indoctrinating the community of vi- virologists. Um, like, it's, you know, it's one thing to say that vaccine has side effects or that even, like, you know, um, that, that certain people shouldn't get it or that, you know, that we don't know the long-term effects. That's much less conspiratorial than saying this yeah. thing was intended to kill billions. To kill everyone. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, it's, that's, it's, a, that's a whole different level than simply I'm afraid of this thing. It's new. I'm not taking it. Fuck you for forcing <laughs> me to take it. I hate – I'm going to do this just to spite you. Like, there's – there's a risk of death in everything in life. Fuck, you know, in F you and not taking the vaccine. That's a different mental mode. You could convince that person with that attitude mm-hmm. to get the vaccine. Yeah. But somebody who believes that that, that is so entrenched in, in distrust of um, society, the deep state, if you will, that they believe <coughs> that that – you're just not going to convince somebody on that. Um and it, it's sad because, like, and there's, there's reasons to distrust the powers that be, but yeah. there needs to be some logic to why you believe certain things are going on. And I, if there's, there's no logic underlying a very strong belief such as that, you're not going to convince people out of that belief using logic. Yeah, it's this weird idea of, like, as much as it, I hate to, like, simplify a lot of things, uh, Occam's razor, or simply that which is the simplest solution, is more often than not the correct solution. It, it applies in a lot of instances. Like when it comes to, okay, is it really po- like is it's possible that literally there have been no whistleblowers for this entire operation of this undergoing of trying to kill everyone with overpopulation control, where hundreds, if not like hundreds, if not thousands of people have to be literally mouth shut, not tell anyone. There's no defectors. There's nothing to go on like this. And then that that then this has con- this continues throughout the entire pandemic, like. Is that more possible than simply it not being correct? And I, I feel like it, to most people, it is very intuitive of, yes, Occam's Racer is usually a good metric to determine if I should like, believe something or not. But I feel like that whenever, uh, when it comes to weird conspiracy positions, uh, the be- the, uh, I go back to it every time. The best way is to simply just ask, can your mind be changed? And if so, how? Right. What, would yeah. you, what would need to be presented to you for you to to have your mind changed, and usually it's nothing, depending on the conspiracy. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I don't like how Occam's razor is often explained. Like the simplest um, solution is most often the right solution. It's more so like that the highest probability solution right is most often the right solution. Because, for example, like there's often complex processes that can explain different things. Like mm-hmm. um, 
Like, uh, that's a great way to put it. Actually. Let's say that I had a girlfriend, right, and she broke up with me. It could be. It could be what? I said she would be lovely, and then you said she broke up with you, so she is not lovely. She, she's not she, lovely, right? She's the worst. She would be, yeah, not lovely. But like, the basis, like, 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 I could say <laughs> that the more complicated, like, reason she could break up with me, she could be divided on the matter. She could want to. She could want to move to a like, 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 like hours away to a, like a different school because she has a strong career ambition. She could also not like me as much because I'm super loud. And all these different complex factors could go into her decision. Like a multitude of factors could be the reason why she breaks up with me. That's not simple. Versus like she met an alien who she had an extreme sexual attraction to. It was like, nope. No more bend time. No more bend. It says no. That is the simplest, but it is obviously not the most probable. (laughs) Yes, it's very simple. Alien, very sexy. Bend, not as much. Alien. Versus I have a multitude of reasons for not Mm. wanting to be bend, and I feel conflicted on on, on this matter, and the costs outweigh the benefits. You know, that's more complicated, but it's also more probable. And so that's why – Occam's razor is kind of misleading the way it's described. Yeah, because you know, like you know? you're right. I didn't even think about like how the description works. So like that, that uh, that's a great way to give Occam's razor, which like that was my understanding of it, but I didn't use the correct words. So, like I will actually use that from now on. That which is yeah. most probable is often most correct. Yeah. yeah, there is this like, hey, uh, why is the Earth here? And then there's this extremely convoluted idea of like a meteor crashing up and creating all this growth. The, the Earth sun. is here. Exactly, the Earth is here because God made it. it. God made it and is holding his his hand under it. Yeah. Versus, there's all like, because that's a, a lot of ancients used to believe there was like the hand of an ancient actually holding up the holding Earth, like a, the Earth. a giant. Um, versus, like, there's all these laws and gravitational forces. The <laughs> laws and gravitational forces are clearly more complex. Um, mm-hmm. But yet they're true, and the simple explanation is not because we have the evidence for it, yes. right? But I could say the, 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 the point of Occam's razor is when you lack evidence and you only have probabilities, um, like a realistic idea of probabilities and assumptions, you, um, you, you, you assume um, that which is more probable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a great way to explain it. Of course, that doesn't, that doesn't absolve it of be, of like – not being true, there could like Occam's doesn't hold for everything, but it's it's mm-hmm. a good uh, a framework to operate under. I feel like, right? Yep, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely agree. We agree on too many things today. I think we discussed this I, before the podcast. I still love our conversations. I feel it's like a good conversation, even though we agree because we we disagree on some things. We offer we offer like uh, yeah ideas of others as well. Yeah, let's bring up my next topic, which we may disagree about: Facebook mm-hmm. and censorship of vaccine. Um, misinformation um, as well, YouTube and Facebook censoring. Um, yeah, what do you think, like, how, how aggressive do you think Facebook and YouTube should be in these endeavors? Do you think they've been too aggressive, not aggressive enough? And so, what, what is, where do you draw the line on, 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 on like, censoring an argument, um, like, uh, on these platforms? As much as I, as you probably feel like we might disagree, I'm worried we might not because uh, I, I actually thought about this more recently. Like something got brought up in my life where I was like, oh, let me you know, let me think about what the situation would like bring apart. And I feel like the, uh, the 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 answer in me is it comes with caveats. There is as of right now, it's weird, and I would like a little bit of a tweaking. But uh, uh, like as a generality, I feel like 
Facebook and YouTube should be able to censor whatever the hell they want. That's like my understanding. Where yeah, there's this like this free speech aspect that people feel like the Constitution applies to these private businesses. Uh, free speech does apply to the pri- uh, the idea of private businesses, but it also applies to their ability to like restrict who and what is said on their platform. Now, of course, it comes to the idea of while Facebook and uh, YouTube are protected under like the ideas where if somebody says something that is incorrect, they cannot be sued or else they, like new places would be screwed over by anyone mm-hmm. wanting to sue because someone on your website said something stupid. There's just too should... many people on your website. And that's where it's like a tweak would maybe have to come in where when should we consider Facebook to be a publisher of information? When should we consider YouTube to be people that like are bringing out their like when some when when something gets big enough and it becomes like an internet monopoly, like there's different ways we can go about it. Should we treat this monopoly of Facebook as they bought Instagram as a like mm-hmm. as a monopoly on information where they can uh, limit whatever the hell they see? Should we focus on antitrust laws to get rid of this monopoly, or should we focus on maybe treating them as something other than a citizen that gives them the or a business in the sense of they can just get rid of anything they want because you know we we hate to see it, but if because I love what private business can do. They can do whatever they want with exceptions like discrimination. Uh, I like that. Like mm-hmm. I feel like anyone should be able to regulate what they have and do not have on their platform. And I don't want them to be sued if someone posts something stupid and then you, like they, you should sue the person, not the company. But I also understand that you know when Trump got banned from Twitter, you know if if there's a presidential campaign going on and like right now Twitter is being used for presidents to actually advocate for themselves and people use it. If that got banned, if say Facebook and say uh, a president in the middle of an election season, in the middle of election year, they got banned from Facebook uh, and Twitter, they'd lose the election. They would not be able to get their name out there. There'd be no information. Like, like it would be such a huge impact that you have to question how, how much power do these people have in determining what is right and what is wrong without uh, identifying what is right and what is wrong. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you on the fundamental that that Facebook and YouTube should mostly be able to censor whatever they want because they're private companies. Mm-hmm. But I take, I guess, because and the my main reason for this is not because I don't, I'm not concerned about Facebook and YouTube having a shit ton of power. Mm-hmm. It's just I don't think if you get the government involved, the government won't improve that particular situation. They'll have their own self interests. Um, they likely like 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 there's mostly a like a broad consensus around you know the like both republicans and democrats believe in censoring misinformation but when it when it serves their interests mm-hmm. um yeah, I agree. You, you know that's both parties i'm not, i'm just i don't know i could be cynical about the two major parties but that's just what it is i mean and, that's mostly and not even just parties that's mostly everyone in a position of power like right they, like it doesn't matter what if libertarian party and uh, communist party kind of jumps up i feel like even a libertarian party may still be okay like they, they'd be okay with people with censoring information even the libertarian years. party could get corrupted yeah um, exactly yeah exactly even from that like the, that core belief of I mean, there's the people i would have the most faith in opposing to, to be of, able like, to do that you know but um because that's like their core thing if you're not you know mm-hmm. but um i mean hey ron paul wanted people to get a driver's license so i mean He's he wanted people saying. to get a driver's license. Yeah, he's corrupted that, in libertarian sense. That moderate Ron Paul. <laughs> yeah. I like Ron Paul. You know, I think he's a crack nut from some things. I don't know. It's just that you can't turn back the clock. That's the big thing. I understand his criticism of the Fed and the power of central banking, but it's already 
I don't know. I don't think you can transition backwards in time. Um, the world's evolved how it's evolved. That's a whole another topic, though. And, but that, but like to speak with that, like yeah, when it got like this, I would love it if we could somehow create this awesome rule where we can uh like where uh, where YouTube and Facebook have to give a definitive reason as to why they were banned and then if or like off the platform and then allow that person to be able to sue to say this is a valid reason or this is not a valid reason. I feel like that would be cool. Like if you could implement that somehow like but then you'd have to question would they just be sued every single time it'd be way too much money in legal fees like or would it's like it wouldn't even be worth to ban them and then also just the legislation to get that done would be a process in itself right so it's, as of now i'm fine with them policing whatever they want because they're private businesses like would i like it be better yeah but i mean right now i don't think it's that big of a problem right because m- i feel like most of the time you don't get banned unless you break a rule which right is when I also just don't here's my thing. I think like this Facebook and YouTube and, and you know and Google and you Google and YouTube the same thing. Yeah. As 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 much as they, you know, try to censor, they just do a terrible job. Anyway, like in the like in the extent that like I know so many people that believe so many different things about, um, you know, the vaccine or COVID, and um, there's other platforms that do exist. There's Rumble. People could go on. And um and they and like they, people if people wanted to see what Donald Trump was thinking every day, they don't need to go on Twitter. They can still do that. Trump has its own website. He's launching his own platform. They, people have as much freedom to go and listen to what Trump's saying. Um, they just are not doing it. Um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, and so there is that element of like you still like you still have a choice. There is I don't think Facebook and Google have they they have a lot of power. Because that's what everybody uses, yeah. but there's still not a monopoly. There still are other things. There's Odyssey, which is like the crypto-powered version of YouTube that um, a lot of these people that have been banned from YouTube go on to. I try. I I was going to. Odyssey is just not a user-friendly app, though. I was actually trying to get my podcast on Odyssey, um, in addition to YouTube, um, just to get a new audience base. Um, but I just haven't done that yet. It's like, I, I just kind of like it. Just you, you had to like set up an account, and they give you they, they, like their whole thing. Like they have, they have like a whole like a like a cryptocurrency just for Odyssey. Like it's an interesting thing. It's, the whole thing is really interesting. But I haven't. Uh, it's just a lot of effort to use Odyssey, and so like unless I was being censored by YouTube for my content, I wouldn't no have the motivation to use it. You know. I, I will say that's like. There's, I feel like there's a psychological term that I'm just I just don't remember the name of where people go where other people go. You That's know? like the idea I, in economics. There's a term for this. It's called the idea of a network good, right? Yeah. Mon- a network good by definition is a good where um, the value of you holding it increases the more that other people are holding it. Like a telephone's an example of a network good, right? The interesting thing about the history of the telephone is that telephones didn't um like existed like for 30 years before everyone had one but they weren't that valuable for you to buy um at the beginning um because and i know like they also like were like connected to landlines that involves public infrastructure but even putting that aside just like buying it at the beginning wasn't that useful because none of the people in your town or relatives owned one but once other people started to own it it became more valuable for you to own it Money is the classic, like, um, example of a network good yeah. because, you know, like, you – money is just transmission – like, a socially accepted sort of value. 
right? And so the more people ha have a certain type of money, the more valuable it is. Um, what's interesting, I actually had this conversation with our friend Abdullah the other day when we went out to Akron to Nams and we were discussing. And Abdullah, like, Abdullah's our friend from Libya, and he was asking a lot about like American norms about divorce. And he asked me why he, I think divorce is higher in America. I talked about a lot of it's like the cultural norms are more socially liberal than Libyans and so on and so forth. But I also brought up the idea that I just came up with it the fly that like divorce is kind of in a weird way a network good in the sense that like if you're living in a society in the 1950s where everybody stays married and it's a big social violation to get a divorce, you getting a divorce despite how painful your marriage might be is less valuable because – the chances you could find another single person in your extremely age group are extremely low, so you're going to want that comfort. But as other people get divorces and are single, and there's more <coughs> like open people, divorce becomes more valuable economically to you. It's a very, you know, it's very like cold way to look at relationships. It's, it's true though, like, but it's very true. It, and then the the question itself comes into like, is that a good thing? You know, I per, as like a, a liberal in essence. Uh, yeah, I do think that's a good thing. Where I feel like there's this weird. No, I is is you have to find a a middle ground where, and this is like where it comes for like some people and like why they dislike the idea of of trans, like the idea, like the concept of transness, like that people will just do it to be cool because it's being like a social idea that people will mm -hmm. do this, and that's why it's bad because yeah. people will fake it and try to just get clout from it. And I'm like, but well, that doesn't make the process itself bad. Like divorce, I feel like in in all instances is a good thing because you're getting out of what could be maybe a toxic relationship. But you have to find a balance between I should probably like. I should probably work it out with my significant other and just divorce them. And we want it where you won't just divorce them at this first slight of like, ah, it bothers me, get me out of here. You want this idea of I will talk to them, and if it's, it actually becomes something that I cannot, uh, I cannot deal with, I will leave. And I, I want that to be normalized, but I don't want it to get too normalized where it becomes eh, first, first sight of problem, I'm out, see you later. Well, yeah, marriage needs to, is a meaningful thing. I mean mm – -hmm. I, you know, despite in the economic sense as well as like uh, the, yeah. the, 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 the cultural sense. Yeah, well, yeah, I think like I completely believe, agree with Jordan Peterson on this when he said that, like, you know, you want like a consistent life story, like a marriage is a good thing to want, really want to keep, you know, mm -hmm. like having a like, I don't know. I think that's one of the most valuable things is marriage. And I'm this is coming from a person that's never had a long term relationship, but just seeing it in all my other relatives, it's like it's just a nice idea. Let's say I find somebody in law school at age 23, get married, and we're with each other until age 80. You know, it's nice to think about there's somebody who is with me in my 70s, who knew me in my 20s, who knew me in my 30s, who knew me in my 40s, kind of was with you through all of that and could connect you and could connect with you and kind of like you feel less alone, not just in your with yourself in the present, but it's almost like you have somebody who's together with you through time. I think there's mm -hmm. like really a benefit to that. <clears throat> really, you don't you, marriage is a serious ass thing. I mean, it's yeah. sad. Like they say, half of marriages end in divorce. And I was telling that Abdullah that this is that 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 statistic can be slightly misleading because that's half of marriages end in divorce, not half of people who get married get divorced. Because if you think about it, a lot of di divorcer divorcees are like repeat offender not offenders that's, oh that's a good point they get divorced two three four times that if half of marriages end in divorce it's actually a good deal less than half of people who get married get divorced like yeah. well more like 40 percent rather than 50%. i'm pretty sure there's probably a statistic yeah. where if you have gone in divorce once you're more likely to get it again precisely precisely so 
Uh, so I, I, I didn't even have to think about that, but that's a, that's a great thing to bring up. And I, I, it's, it's weird, like what you said, like that, uh, the concept of having someone you're just with the whole time. Like, it's a super important part. I feel like marriage is the idea that binds it. And like, you can have it with friends. Like, like I'd like to imagine that me and you, Ben, we will be friends up until hopefully if we're 70, 80. Like, we'll stay in we're, contact. We're going to be in Ohio things. going to law schools. Well, you, but you don't know if you're going to go to law school in Ohio because That's it. Lyndon wants to move to Georgia. To Georgia. Like, Georgia school. It's, but I feel like even then, I feel like the connection aspect, I feel like that will not fall apart. Like, right. I, I, when I have friends, like, uh, like, when you go through friends, I've gone through quite a few, like, different friend groups and, like, Right, and that helped that helped me like uh, understand like mm-hmm. who I actually want as a friend. And I feel really comfortable where I am now mm-hmm. with the friends that I have. So it's like I'm going to continue to pursue those that I do find close friends, even if it comes to moving and stuff like that. Uh, you can get that connection, but like the yeah, with the idea of uh, a wedding or just getting married, like it's this 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 person you will spend like that's when it's it's weird where I find people like I'm more of the conservative type where. Like, like the far, like, like the gay, like uh, the fact that like uh, the like, gay people shouldn't be allowed to get married, married or anything like that. Marriage isn't about this. You're going to have sex with them, and that is the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is to have a lifelong partner, someone that you will experience all this stuff with. And I think that is meaningful. And I feel like everyone should be going into, into the idea of marriage of this is someone I want to spend the rest of my life. Sometimes you choose. Sometimes uh, you don't get that. Sometimes you do find someone that you feel like you want to spend the rest of your life together, and then it just something changes and it ends, and that's fine. But I don't want people to just get married on, on a whimsical basis. I feel like it's nice to have that uh, that uh, cultural understanding of this is a, a, a binding of people you want to spend the rest of your life together. But it is not bad if that wasn't the right person. Yeah, exactly. And it's a rite of passage, too. It's like one of the, like, you know, and that, like, I raised grew up in a really Catholic family. Marriage is one of the main sacraments of your life, you know, mm-hmm. which kind of sacraments kind of like denote different life periods, um, you know. Because kind of like a lot of cultures have different like ceremonies that like now you're a man now mm-hmm. now you're 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 you are a your marriage parent there's like you know there's like there's like anointing of the sick when you're about to die you know there's different yeah. things it's interesting I actually feel like that's really bad for like a society the concept of like getting married is a rite of passage because you know you're you kind of like try to force yourself into doing it a lot of like, people feel, like, feel yeah a lot of people feel pre- pressured by being married because it like well, they, fe- they fear being alone forever, but they're, like, jealous of other people for getting married. Mm-hmm. But then there's conditions of the societal rite of passage, like, um, there's just the biological element of people's clocks are ticking. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, there's a lot of, like, it's interesting, like, there's a lot of, like, different comedy sketches online of women who are, like, approaching their, like, you know, uh, late 30s or mid 30s, you know, or, or just even early 30s. At that point, I mean, you're, like, you're... You know, like you, you the, 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 I mean, I don't know, the, the, the ideal time to have like a baby is, is in your 20s. You know, once you get yeah. in your 30s, already the risk of different deformities are going up mm-hmm. um, slightly and then more dramatically after 35, 36. It's, but there's, what I was going to say was there's a lot of women th- th- that age group that know they want to have children, mm-hmm. but they get desperate and they really do want to marry and find someone. And there's a lot of like yeah. dumb, there's a lot of jokes online. And I'm and I'm not that many that friend, many friends with sing, I'm not friends with many single women in their thirties, so I don't really mm-hmm. know the, the degree of the truth to this. But like you know, of women who used to be a lot more picky with men when they were younger, like being a lot less picky because now their biological clock is ticking. There's a lot of different sketches about it. And it's interesting. It, it is yeah. it is actually because my girlfriend is actually like uh, she she we got together and she 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 got a book which uh it was called like settling for okay or something like that because it was about this concept of 
uh, as a younger age, like women have these, and not even women, just men as well. I feel like women more so, based on like how how like men and women are raised in society, women more so are going to have this like understanding of what they want in a guy, and if they don't check all the boxes, they move on. And that's, I mean, that's fine, but most of the time you're not going to be on the boxes. A lot of marriages, a lot of relationships, there's going to be something that you have to work on. There's going to be something you don't get, and that's fine. And this book goes into a lot of like why it's okay to settle, like when you see someone in a romance novel or you see Twilight Edward jacob and you're like you know what i don't have that person who is this but that's okay and why it is okay and it goes in like just this idea of why you why you settle for okay you don't settle for perfect you settle for okay because turns out okay can be perfect in a sense but and it also like i feel like every decision and i've felt this more and more as the age progresses and like my mind sharpens and i'm like you know age like just time is so valuable like even on comedy shows like new girl where it's primarily just funny and jokes like there was an episode where there's these the two female main characters uh one of them is freaking out because they read like a study of like people like some people just are born with less eggs in like their ovary for them to give birth and they they go to the doctor together the person that was worried like they're they're fine and then the person that wasn't worried is like they have like a, they have a time frame of okay this is how long you have to have a child and it's coming up and they're like oh shit what do I do it's and I, that's like something to realize because we have this like uh, this mindset as a society too we all want to be independent we all want to have these jobs that are good but sometimes jobs take time and then you have to sacrifice so many things in the aspect of time like I wish I could do so much more stuff in college I wish I could go to hang out with you every night but then I have my girlfriend that I want to give time to I have school that I have to study for it's this weighing of different things I just wish I had so much more time to fit everything I could do in in a certain time frame and just that concept is so wrestling with that concept of like time is limited and you have to do what you can and manage what you can sometimes there are things that you want to do that you just have to push under the table and say you know I cannot do that and that that that's so hard to like acknowledge and it's hard you know like especially like big life decisions like me going to law school you going to law school like that's the rest of your life that's your career that's for that's 40 years what you're committing to Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a lot of time. Um, it's hard to make decisions based off of all that. Uh, yeah, we got a good deal off topic, but in a good way. We had a lot of good <laughs> yeah, discussion. Exactly. I never really gave my full opinion on YouTube and Facebook. Censorship. Oh, yeah. What is I mean, thing? when it comes to the state, um, what they should do, just leave them alone. But I do, it's not that I, I don't, I do see a lot of what's going on as problematic. And this is a person who's mostly pro-vaccine. I wasn't pro-lockdown. Well, to be fair, it was in retrospect, and I wasn't pro. But, like, the first couple months I was pro-lockdown because I didn't know what the fuck was going on. And I didn't know anything about epidemiology. I didn't form an opinion um, on that. And I wanted to save lives, you know. But, like, generally, I mean, I can – my point is I can oppose the mainstream COVID narrative on a lot of different things. I don't mind going against the grain, and there's reasons to distrust different authorities on different things. But I generally, when it comes to the vaccine, I'm totally mainstream. This is the, the this is the best shot somebody can take for the vast majority of people. That's what the data shows. You can bring up anecdotes. Like I know my mother loves to bring up the anecdote of like she she had um, Hodgkin's lymphoma, form of cancer, and she met this person that had Hodgkin's lymphoma that got the vaccine that shortly thereafter had a stroke. And that the per- that this person blamed the the stroke on the oh, vaccine, nice. and you know my mom just thinks that the vaccine like like takes that anecdote as gospel. Mm-hmm. Well, there's plenty of anecdotes of people dying of COVID and so on. 
you know, but like I take the mainstream narrative, it's still like a lot, like some of this suppression um, in different areas bothers um, me. Like for, for example, like to the point, not to the point where I want the state to restrict and do stuff, because the moment you let the state touch that stuff, they'll restrict things in their own interest. Once you can like make them the arbiter of what can and cannot be restricted. Um, but it's more so just like, like for example, like the Instagram, like the hashtag natural immunity on Instagram, you click that hashtag, it takes you immediately to the CDC page and not yeah. to different people's posts about different things. <coughs> like, I don't know, it's a certain, like, like the, the degree of control of where people see. It's not that I don't, like I said, I, I think people who have platforms could do what they want with their platforms. I just, I think American citizens need to be careful and more informed as to what they're digesting. And they also need to know as to how, how it's doctored um, to, to help to serve different people's interests, even if it's different people's interests, like for the good. You know, it's good that we restrict posts about natural immunity because that, like, because maybe the vaccine does improve things on top of natural immunity. You want to save, we want to save lives, and this this constriction of information is good. You could argue it it nudges people in the right directions towards doing the right things that help people. That's kind of the view people and many people have about restricting information. But what what I'm just afraid is that a lot of times Facebook and these companies do these things, restrict these these thing, these these um, pieces of information at the government's behest, right? Yeah. Like Facebook does all these restrictions because they know if they don't do these restrictions, they won't get a certain tax benefit from the government. They won't do that, this, the other thing. But it's it's nice to have that libertarian view of these companies. They're ex they're completely separate entities existing in a free market where if we don't like Facebook or Google, we can go on to Rumble or Odyssey. And we can, yeah. but there's that network effect. They're, they're network goods, just like phones, divorces, and money. Um, social media apps are network goods, as we said. And, you know, and so the point where um, I guess like uh, – and then that kind of points to another big problem with just corporatism in our politics, how ever – it's really interesting. You know, speaking of like the fact that I'm, we're not anarcho-capitalists, but anarcho-capitalists make good points about stuff. Like one of the greatest points of like Murray Rothbard's book, The Progressive Era, was the idea that like the Progressive Era started out as a bunch of people, you know, opposing corporate interests and trying to use the state um, to oppose corporate interests and so on, and like you know, and 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 increase worker power and um, you know, break up companies. But what the Progressive Era ended up doing, this is you know, Rothbard's main critique of the Progressive Era, is that it did in many ways it did the opposite of what it intended, in that it merged corporations and, and the state into one entity, right? Mm -hmm. And the New Deal included a lot of that. Because um, the thing about like government control of the economy is it's easier for the government, and I think Robert Higgs made this point, it's easier for the government to control people if they can do so through um, gigantic corporate entities. Yeah. Gigantic corporate entities are easier to control than thousands of much smaller entities. Right, yeah. and I don't know what the solution is with Facebook and other type, other things. But I just knew that the, like, if seeing how how much <coughs> Facebook can control different things on like subjects of the vaccine, like what else can they control? They can control a lot of different things. If they could do this at the government's behest, you know, um, whether it be like you know somebody arguing for rights and people in Palestine, right, saying that's anti-Semitic hate speech and restricting it because of got different governmental pressures and so on and so forth. I'm just skeptical. I, want just, I just want the government as far away from the companies as possible. Um, mm -hmm. 
I think that alone would decrease how much they restrict. And I just think, like, I also think, like, um, there comes a point, like, it, uh, it's fine that you have, it's fine that YouTube restricts as much as they want, so long as Odyssey also exists. But yeah. if there's, like, a monopoly on, like, the App Store or the Internet, you know, like, like, like um, where you couldn't go to the Odyssey website, you couldn't download certain apps, you, you, when you can't download the apps of competitors, that's when I think antitrust laws to come in and say, no, Amazon, no Google, you have to allow apps that do the exact same thing as YouTube to be also downloaded on your app store. And I don't yeah. mind the state interview intervening there. The exact parameters of the law there and how you establish that law, that's something I don't know enough about. Um, that's why I'm going to go to law school. Yeah, that's just it. That shit. But, you know, I think the state has, I mean, the, the state should not have a role in deciding what content is and is not allowed on these apps. But yeah. if the state has any role or could do something well, um, it is in ensuring that, that that consumers have an option between a large variety of apps, <coughs> mm -hmm. and uh, and get and you know getting money out of politics would be a big thing here. There just needs to be there's just too many revolving doors. Like it's understandable people distrust the FDA, for example, because the FDA has been corrupt in the past. There have been drugs that have gotten approved that have been that have been ineffective and slightly unsafe. But those types of drugs typically affect a small percentage of the population such uh -huh. that they can't amass the political power to fight against it after the profits are made. Whereas mm -hmm. the vaccine, it's just like billions of people. The incentive structure isn't there for something un unsafe to come out. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like the number one belief I don't – reason I don't believe there's any conspiracy. It's, it's much more believable to me that ivermectin works and there's – there's, there are economic incentives for Pfizer and the FDA with the revolving door with people from Pfizer regulating Pfizer to restrict like like information about ivermectin as an alternative that could have some effect. There is some incentive there, but I don't yeah. think there's an incentive for them to push a vaccine that doesn't help more than it hurts. Yeah. Um, because it, it, <coughs> as, as, an economy, as an economics major, I look at the incentives, right? And any big conspiracy when it comes to the vaccine, the incentives just aren't there. Um, if, if somebody wanted to do something with overpopulation too and had the power, like the vaccine wouldn't be the way to do it either. There would just it would, be different methods to it, do it. It would just be to like honestly release a virus that kills a lot more people than COVID does and make sure as hell that people don't figure out where the source of that virus is. Yeah. Um, and, like, COVID does not make sense to get rid of overpopulation because, number one, the population has been increasing this whole time, um, you know, even despite all the deaths. It's something my friend Anthony, who you've met, Anthony, he's a cool guy. He's a little bit crazy in some ways. He's, he's, he's so funny, such a fun guy, a kind, yeah, funny. A kind warm soul. But he, um, he's like one of those, he, like, doesn't like the fact that there are more people on the planet. And he also, like, is just kind of a very risk, he's, he's, He's completely okay with risk taking. He's just on much more on the side, the libertarian side of things when it comes to COVID. It's interesting on like environmental issues. He wants gigantic, insane protection. A, yeah. a gigantic government in intervention. Doesn't believe in it at all. COVID. And one of the things he told me, he said, said, "Well, Ben, the po the, the human population has been increasing this entire time." <laughs> like as if that's an argument that we shouldn't be trying to save lives with COVID. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a point. Like, if COVID was not done overpopulation, but if you wanted to, there's up. You, if you had that much power to create a vaccine to kill people, 
you could just create a virus to kill people. Exactly. Point. Um, you know, uh, but that's that issue. But yeah, I don't. I I just know that it's just, it's mainly laziness is the reason why I don't um, put this podcast out on alternative platforms. But I, I if I live more in according with my values, I would put these on alternative that platforms because I do believe in alternative platforms. And I don't know. I don't. I don't. Um, and it's not just like 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 restriction against like the vaccine or different right wing things. Like you look at how YouTube treats Kyle Kalinsky, the progressive um, YouTuber, <laughs> and like how he can't. So much of his shit gets demonetized when it's mm-hmm. good content, in my opinion. Versus mains a lot of the ma- like they 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 really like they give all the power to the institutional CB like CBS ABC. There's many reasons I hate YouTube and Facebook, but it's kind of yeah. like you're, you're biting the hand that feeds you. And I'm my, – I guess the, my biggest point is I don't believe in – so we agree on the government part of it. I just think there needs to be more effort on the part of people to, like, try and support other platforms. I guess that was that's the point I've been driving at. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Uh, it's just – I feel like that's the hard part of figuring out how people even do that, like how to support other platforms. It's just so – almost impossible almost because like the amount of the amount people just care about certain things like the amount of people care about being in that like group idea of oh everyone else is here so i'm gonna go there too it's hard to overcome and i feel like the biggest way to overcome that is by having a bad platform that has all these people but when it comes to like the, the intuitive part like when it came to uh, that the, the one of the youtube uh opposite that you could go to like Having a good website matters, and what to make a good website, you need money, and to need to get money, you have to either be rich or you have to make money, and it's just it's hard to get to that position where you can actually bring a good competitor. Right. So that's like that's said, what I like. I said I have Odyssey is very very not user friendly. Mm-hmm. Um. Like yeah, and so, uh, like um. That's it's a, it is tough. There's not that many user friendly alternatives because Google's just amassed so much money. I mean, it's this multi they, like I don't know what Google's market capitalization is, um, but like, I mean, Google can can tell you every street in America, every yeah. address in America. That's an insane amount of information that Google has. Um, how do you compete with that? get up to that level that is mm-hmm. really hard it's a very good question like yeah um yeah so that's that was a good rambling on my part uh, i like it uh <laughs> next thing i want to bring up um is uh um what makes a good debater you've talked about about like the merits of debate itself mm-hmm. um what do you think makes a person really good at debating uh, see, funnily enough, uh, I feel like inf- knowledge helps, obviously, but when it comes to debate, I really don't think it is that important. Uh, I feel like when it comes to debate, I think rhetoric is the most important thing that you can have as a debater, the, how well you come off to people that you're talking to, uh, how well you seem reasonable, how well you can make the other person seem stupid is probably the most important uh, aspect when it comes to debates. Because if it, when it comes to discussions, obviously information and ability to form thoughts is extremely important. But when it comes to debates and just the idea of beating the other side, all that's necessary is for you to be charismatic, for you to be able to think fast, and for you to be able to uh, have a 
a good uh, good understanding of a position and how to get out of things like and just a wherewithal of knowing what harms your position has it's a mix of both but if you have all the knowledge in the world on a certain topic but you don't know how to uh you don't know how to uh explain that to someone you won't convince anybody if you like you could be correct about everything you could have just as understanding and i find this a lot with like when i talk to people like when it comes to libertarians libertarians i feel like do not know how to uh dumb things down i feel like that's actually extremely important when it comes to i feel like me i feel like i i've gotten a good understanding of how to take philosophical concepts which can be extremely robust and complicated and i can turn them into like stuff people can normal people that don't really care can comprehend and understand and i feel like that's extremely important when it comes to debates because mm-hmm. you don't know what your opponent can know libertarians can talk about the economic economics and talk about how amazing something can be for an economy and how to improve something and they can be 100 right but if you're saying all this and then the person to the next of you is going what the fuck is this guy saying you're right. nothing is being done right yeah. like if, if, if libertarians talk a lot about like distortions in the amount of the market, the healthcare market. In the long term, there's going to be not as much growth and development in this market if we give it all to the government. That doesn't sound as good as like, and I'm not saying that the libertarian position is right on healthcare. It's complicated. I mean, on the one hand, in the short run, you definitely reduce a lot more suffering having universal healthcare. Yes. And it's also equitable too. Like there's certain issues like goods in society where people want to have a level um, playing field, or like, 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 like most, a lot of people don't like the idea that having more money means that you can get better healthcare than another person, that have <coughs> less of a chance to dying of another than another person because you have more money, right? Yeah, healthcare is a good where most Western societies people are like no, we ration based off of need, not based off of money, right? Mm-hmm. The United States is different in that vein, and um. There's um so there's just some understanding um and, and there's that understanding there's like it, it, like universal healthcare certainly with for people that don't have healthcare like you know have, we just have Medicare Medicaid they, they get poor healthcare like making making it more equitable there's some value people value equi- equity right it's something people value mm-hmm. in and of itself but um you know there's the libertarian argument I guess that's more complicated it's a lot it doesn't ring as true to the ears as as like healthcare is a right. You believe in rich people dying before yeah. poor people die, um, excuse me, dying like rich people not dying instead of poor people because they have more money. You're greedy. You want people to be out on the streets. You know these things are easy. But whereas the libertarian argument is more so like about scarcity and economic development of drugs, and also like the amount of power that doctors have versus the state, and those things don't ring to most of people's. Um, Minds, and not saying they are the right, but they when they do argue about healthcare, typically is a lot more complicated than the progressive argument is. Mm-hmm. The only reason they have, you know, like well, like it's not like the libertarians have gotten what they want. We've got this dumb corporatist hodgepodge system of healthcare, mm-hmm. um, and like the but like in the, and you know it's the reason universal healthcare hasn't gone into place is just has any every. Uh, uh, it has everything to do with the, let's say it has to do with the money that the insurance companies have. I mean, they employ millions of people, mm-hmm. but it actually doesn't just have to do with the money that the insurance companies have. I mean, I actually last semester I was in the, the internship program with Kent State Washington program in national issues, mm-hmm. um, where we you know I had my internship with Alliance for Just Money, learned all about the banking system, but I also like every once a week I got like 
uh, briefings from the FBI, the CIA, different think tanks, so on and so forth. And um, but like one of the people we had um, that we got to talk to, this woman named Judith Fe- uh, Fader, she's like mm-hmm. very famous actually in the healthcare policy field. Like she's one of the principal architects of Obamacare. Oh. Um, and we got to talk with her and ask her questions. Mm-hmm. And I asked her, like, well, what do you think is a bigger force in keeping universal health care from happening in the United States? And she said, um, like, well, I asked her, is it, do you think it's more so the money, the meaning the, um, you know, the insurance companies keeping it ha- from happening with all the money they have, the lobbying? Or do you think it is the ideology, the people who don't want the state to control, to even finance the, the health care system fully and um, – you know, and she actually her answer surprised me because I fully expected the answer to be the money, but she said no. It's that in fact it's the ideology, is the stronger force in keeping universal health care from happening. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole I just I don't know, I didn't, that's a whole another discussion than what makes a good debater. Yeah. But yet the point is that like, liber- I mean the people who do become libertarian or conservative are strong in their ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to explaining their ideology and the complexities they're in and why they believe what they be- believe, they, they're you're right. I th- in my experience, libertarians are not good at dumbing it down. Yeah. Um, they, 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 they are confusing and often unrelatable, um, <laughs> and that, that makes them often not good debaters. Mm-hmm. You know? um, I really do think that's one of the most important parts of being a debater is just the idea to get your point across in a way anyone can understand. Right. I think that's like what makes – libertarian comedian dave smith so good i don't know if you know about him but he's like kind of like a rising star in like the libertarian liberty movement he's like known like that dude can actually talk he's a comedian so he knows how to talk to regular people mm-hmm. and like he has no like formal training in economics or philosophy or no political experience but how he's like gotten to be such a big voice is he just knows how to talk to people mm-hmm. um and that is that in itself is a skill yeah um, you know, I think another thing besides just knowing how to dumb things down, how to use rhetoric um, to beat down your <laughs> opponent, and how to um, uh, um, you know, but like, I lost my train of thought. But in addition to all those things, I think another big thing with debating is just confidence, right? Like yeah. this, but no, but having this real conviction that you're right and <laughs> speaking as though you're right, and when somebody says a good point against you. Um, not showing it in your face that you feel mm-hmm. like you just lost, got attacked, but just feeling fierce, like that fierce intensity and confidence. I know that's something that I, I was really bad at when I started debate. Like somebody would make a good point against me and my face would drop and I'd be like, hey, that's a good you, point. what? Yeah. That's a, shit, that's a good point, you know? That's a good point. And I, I even say it's a good point because I'm too honest. But mm. it's like, debate taught me how to both bullshit and not be as honest and be more confident. It's really good tra- character trait. But yes. well, it's like when I was debating you the other day, not, like a couple weeks ago. I think the debate topic was um, privacy is dead, right? Mm. I honestly felt on the inside that you were <laughs> winning that whole debate, uh-huh. but I was arguing confidently the whole time, like mm-hmm. what I was saying. But on the inside, I'm like, I'm wrong. He's right. He's making good <laughs> points. <laughs> I don't, I don't show it on my face. Mm-hmm. And when it was time for the judges to tell me who, to tell us who won the debate between you and I, there was a part of me that of me that generally had this like inner lack of confidence that thought I lost. But I was surprised when everybody said I won. I was like, you oh. won, yeah. I was like, but then that's because I've learned how to, um, 
appear confident where underneath the surface it's all, it's all a lie. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a, that's a that's a that's a skill you learn over time um, with debate. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel like that is that is huge. It, I like it's weird because there's th- I feel like there's three different types of people that uh that that debate. There's the first one, which uh they're very honest, where they will not they will be following how they think the conversation is going in their face. Like they'll be like, oh, that was a good point, or oh, I made a good point. They'll be expressing their emotions. And then there's people like you just said that even if you uh, feel like they're making good points, you will stay confident in uh, what you you're saying, and you will act like you are correct. And then there's a type that will believe that they are correct no matter what, even going into something like this. Like they literally will go in. Like that's what I try to do uh, because that, the one thing I struggled with was uh, uh, arguing for something that beforehand I believe was wrong. Like it's hard for me to uh, get rid of my preconceived notions uh, about debate. And I just go, shit, I got, I got a topic that I feel like the opponent is correct. And I don't know how to argue. I don't know how to argue against it. So I just, I didn't really, I tried, but it wasn't really good. And a go, uh, like, I just use that. And then I become dogmatic. I literally just say my, my part is correct, no matter what. And I'm going to take what I feel like beats the argument and just deliberately research that stuff that I feel like is a defeater to an argument and find out the way to best swerve it. So if they bring up something I don't know, I immediately assume this is a bad argument because I didn't think of it. The reason, and if I didn't think of it, it's a bad argument. So I just go in with that mindset. And I'm like, there's a way to defeat it. And the ways that I believe defeat the argument, I have ways to circumvent that and kind of get get, get away from. And that's mm-hmm. that's how I uh, got over what I believe was my the hardest part of me debating. But yeah, other than that, it was mm-hmm. uh, confidence is huge when it comes to it. It is, and it comes with time too. Mm-hmm. Like the first, like your first ever debate tournament, you're like, you you feel like an imposter, right? I would but, say, yeah. But like, I guess people need to get over the like people just like when it comes to public speaking, a lot of people just feel weak, like afraid to expose, <laughs> you know, to really um put themselves out there in front of large amounts of people. But the fundamental thing you have to remember underneath it all is that like the person you're talking to is a human, you're a human. Yes, humans vary wildly intelligent. You have everybody from Homer Simpson to Stephen Hawking, right? You know, um, but reality is, like, human, a human is still a human. Um, and you still can, you know, like, even people, somebody who's really dumb, you know, could be smart, a lot smarter than you think. Like, we're all the same species. Don't feel that much lesser than anybody else because of yeah. anything. Yeah, you could be a burger flipper your whole life or an astronaut. That doesn't matter. You're a human. Like, and talk to the person. Talk to it, another person, as if you are on even ground with them, mm-hmm. just on the basis of being a human. And, yeah. I will say my mindset with, like, that has gotten a lot better because it's weird because as, as I've gone in these, like, areas of, like, you know, uh, these discords where I talk to people of everywhere. Like, I, I've run into people that, you know, I've watched on YouTube that have debated, that have either, like, been debated against or debated for that I've watched. And I, it's, it was weird the first few times talking to these people that I'm like, wow, these guys have a big audience. Like, they, they're, they're, like, famous to an extent. And just uh, talking to them and trying to stay calm and, like, just realizing that, you know, they're literally the exact same as me, except... They just have people that, you know, watch them. And, like, when I when I compare knowledge, like, just because he is more known does not mean he is more correct. 
and I feel like that has helped with public speaking too. I used to hate public speaking, and now I actually I actually really like it. I th- I enjoy it because I'm like I- I've gotten used to the whole like everyone staring at me, and I'm a- and I just tell myself like I'm co- I'm confident enough in my abilities to say what I need to, where I can really talk about anything in front of as many people as I need to, just because. Uh, it doesn't really bother me anymore because I have this like idea of like you know what everyone there is probably just another version of me with like different information and how do I feel when this happens I just don't care at all or I do care depending on what it says so if I just make it interesting it'll all go fine so I don't really, exactly. I never really just make the best points you can and you just have to not be afraid of failure too you're not it's not Squid Game you're not gonna die if you lose the day um. <coughs> And so that's what you have to acknowledge. I don't know. It's interesting. And I've also just grown confidence as I've gotten to know more people, too, and, like, really interact with these ideas a lot mm-hmm. more. I, mean, I don't know. Like, our politicians aren't, like, gods who are a lot smarter than us. A lot of times they're a lot dumber than us. You know, but there's that the level of authority there, right? Mm-hmm. And that authority amplifies people in, like, more than – to be bigger things than they actually are. Yeah. It's interesting to think, like – this just comes to my mind, like degrees of separation, right? The idea, like, how many degrees of separation are you from the president in terms, in terms of people, not not just people you've like met, but people you've talked to. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, back when I was libertarian freshman year, and I, we, Jeff Dice came to campus, and we had like, I had a tw- like a fifteen minute conversation with the man and like three other people <laughs> in like a circle, like that. He was Ron Paul's chief of staff. Yeah, I'm like two degrees of separation away from Ron Paul. I like. For Alliance for Just Money, you know, when I worked with them, um, I, um, you know, they, they had like a coffee house with this person um, who was with Richard Wolf's wife, and Richard Wolf has been on like interviewed Bernie Sanders. So I'm mm-hmm. three degrees of separation um, away from Bernie Sanders. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm probably never gonna be that po- powerful, partly because I don't want to be that powerful. If I wanted to work my ass off. Mm-hmm. And I could have boosted my LSAT from 169 to like, the upper 170s. I would have really had to work my ass off because, you know, I, I, I like studied a total of 18 hours for my LSAT. There's a lot of professors that say you should like, like do a total of 200 hours in. Yeah, they literally tell like because uh, I, I researched a little bit. They were like, yeah, you should probably start six months before and do an hour a day. And I'm like, no, I did. I started um, six weeks before and did three hours a week. I got a 169. But yeah. if I wanted to, I could have pushed my ass and could have gotten up, the, up through the 170s. I could try to go to Harvard, get, you know, I try to could try and, you know, in like, like, like clerk for the Supreme Court, you know. Um, but I don't want to live that one of life. I want to live a simple life in Ohio. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm down to get into politics. It's just more so it. I don't, I don't <coughs> know what I want. I mean, so much yeah. of, you, you, of, you, of what you want is contingent on different things that you don't, variables you don't know yet. Yeah. You know, um, so like, I don't know if I'm, when and if I'm going to find a significant other that'll want me to move to a certain place and so on and so forth. And I, what I value in life are relationships and all my relationships are in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it can make a lot of difference in Ohio. You know, I, I would, might, might one day run for state house in Ohio. That might turn to something, but I don't like particularly aspire to be in the elite. I just, I aspire to be where I am most helpful um, in the next stage of my life, right? Yeah. But there's some people who they get out of high school and their eyes are directly onto Wall Street. Their eyes are directly onto Congress. Um, like our, like Trevor from the debate oh, yeah. team. He wants to be president, you know, um, not just of the debate team, but of the United States. The United States, yeah. Yeah, so like it's, but that's just not me. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just, I think, Feel that confidence. I think there's a confidence, like though, 
there's somewhat of a confidence of just being like less degrees of separation from the people who are leading everything. Yeah. And like, it kind of this also reminds me. A lot of things remind me of other things, you know. <laughs> but like when I was at my brother's wedding um, back mm-hmm. in May, and we talked to um, his friend, uh, one of the Varleys. I, oh, God damn it! There's so like, uh, well, like, they, they were like a family. There were like five different Varleys. One was in my grade, Tom. But yeah, anyway, I forget. And but I was talking to him, and he's like, you know. What's scary about being an adult and getting up in like in the the power at your lines is when you realize that you're the guy who's it, mm-hmm. you know that like is supposed to know the most about something, and yeah. you still feel like you don't know shit about it. But like you somehow you realize that wait you're that it's, that it's on you, you know, and that's interesting, you know, like um, mm-hmm. you get up <coughs> higher, you're still the same humble human, you still have faults and things you don't know. Mm-hmm. I feel like. Being around people who have power and realizing they're not that much smarter than you. Yes, they might be a good deal smarter than you in some ways, um, but that can that can that can give you confidence. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. Um. Another thing I want to ask you about is like, how do people judge debates? I mean, we both. So one thing we never talked about this whole podcast is the fact that like the type of debates we compete in with Kent State, <laughs> the type of debate we compete in with Kent State is an extemporaneous form of debate called IPDA or International Public Debate Association debate, and it involves you know getting five topics and you and a partner strike topics until you have one, and you have thirty minutes to prepare um, uh, to debate that topic. You know, and there's a lot of different judges that judge those debates in different ways. Um, how, what makes a good debater? What makes a person win a debate in the judge's eyes? And how does this often vary from judge to judge? Um, so, like, I, I like to go about this with, like, because it's, it's experiences that we both had where I've gotten multiple different judges, and it's really hard to determine how I should go about around based on um, how, my, how my judge is acting. And that's like, the, that's like this weird idea of like, you know, I feel like for this round at least, I have to stereotype my judge. What, what, can, I, what can I feel like this person will represent? And there, there's a multitude, when there's a person who is more, because um, the majority of people that uh, debate is, or a judge, especially in our round, are those that people can find. You know, it's not really this person who's been trained in the art of judging things and exactly what to look for and how the point system works. Sometimes it's just someone who is, you know, there to listen and be like, oh, you know, that that person made a better argument. And because of that, you know, it, it, it is a lot of, as a debater, I like, when I judge, I, I like logic. I like when something makes sense, it goes together and it is not broken apart in the middle. If you can create a uh, reasoning for your argument that is sound, that uh, the opponent cannot debunk, that cannot destroy, and that is better than the same thing your opponent does, uh, then you win. If you create an argument that is logical and also more convincing, then I like it. If you make an argument that is extremely convincing, you are very emotional about it, you make it very personal, uh, you provide a lot of uh, like evidence to uh, bring you to a conclusion, but your conclusion it doesn't have a good basis or the foundation for your conclusion is not good enough, 
uh, like, and it's just kind of like, it's a disconnect and you just kind of jump to the conclusion, assume it's correct and just throw stuff behind it, hoping it'll fix everything. I don't like that. It doesn't matter how much better you do than your opponent in the rhetoric or how you handle it. It, it, what really matters to me is the logical soundness of an argument, and that's and that, that's just one aspect of data. There's betas that do just care about how you come off uh, in comparison to your opponent, how confident you sound, how much you like your position, and, and people will judge by that. It, it, and it's it, it's kind of fun, honestly, when it comes to debates, just this wide variety that you can run into. I like it just because it's like, oh, you know, who am I going to get this time? What are they going to believe? What is a... what what how should I pursue this round? And that's where weighing mechanisms come in, which would be cool. I don't know how much people uh, listen to weighing mechanisms, but it, it, it's it's kind of fun and it keeps it guessing. Where like I don't have, I shouldn't go to the debate uh, to debate with the exact same mindset for each one. If I see someone who you know looks like a conservative, even though they might not be, I will argue as if I'm arguing in favor for a conservative. Like it, it's it's weird. What do you think? I remember from when I would compete in high school, except Randy is speaking, mm -hmm. um, Alex Connor, uh, Rosebud Porath, and I, we always profiled um, the judges based off their names. And apparently there's an app out there that um, Alex and Rose always used, although I never um, used, but used it. But basically you could type in the first and the last name of somebody, and I can uh -huh. tell you the, pri the probabilities of their race, um, <laughs> their gender, their um, their religious affiliation, their political affiliation, just based <laughs> off of their first and last names. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's an algorithm, and they used that because we knew the names of the judges thirty minutes before the round would start, and so mm -hmm. they dot would they would adjust their speeches based off of those probabilities. Like if it <laughs> if you know if the name was Olga Matthews, um, Olga Matthews is likely religious, very likely a woman. Um, you know, probably, um, Olga is like more probably an older woman, but then you also have to factor that, that like, you, like, um, and then if it's, if you're, if you're competing in a, you also have like to factor in situational factors, you know, if you're competing in a rural high school, like, you know, Canfield, um, you know, you, and, and like the most of the volunteers are parents, um, mm -hmm. that Olga even if she was already more pa more probable she would be conservative rather than liberal, even more so given that you're living in a rural district. Yeah. Um, versus like an Olga Matthews at a college tournament, the types of volunteers at the college tournaments typically are professors. Mm -hmm. um, and, and any – even if you're any an old woman working for a college versus an old, old woman volunteering at a high school tournament, um, the old woman at the college is going to be much more liberal. Yeah. Um, and so you have to adjust, ju you can adjust what you argue based off of that. Um, so I understand that strategy. I mean, yeah, but like, um, a lot, like most college tournaments, you don't even get the names of the judges, um, <laughs> beforehand. So it doesn't yeah. even matter. You just get assigned a judge. Yeah. High school, they give the names and, you know, high schoolers can exploit that. But yeah, it's interesting to see how different judges judge. The, the, the thing I most hate with what judges judge was the ones that like they they they, they don't really they truly don't know anything about judging debate properly at all, mm -hmm. to the point where like if they just don't like your argument, it doesn't matter if your opponent didn't 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 themselves point out any of the valid flaws with your argument, so long as they think there's a valid it's a bad flaw argument. yeah exactly with your argument even though your opponent did nothing they they'll just make you lose just because they disagree with you. That's the worst kind of judge.
Uh, and the fact of it is, I feel like because I feel like most of this, especially in college, like the, the debate judges you get, there are some nice ones, but I feel like some of them are their speech and debate are usually intertwined at the same place, and also uh, um, because they're intertwined at the same place, uh, debate is obviously less than speech in the majority of cases. So mm-hmm. judges for speech get moved over to judges for debate, and it, it usually comes of uh, when you're a judge for speech, uh, you usually don't know debate, so you're just going in with the mindset, oh, this person is arguing against minimum wage uh, or like uh, something about uh, being against uh, like free housing in America. And then they just assume like, you know, I, I, I don't believe in this. And then you go debate and then they don't bring up any, like you said, they don't bring up any uh, actual contentions. And then they apply their own contentions to the topic. And I'm like, this is like, it's not how it's supposed to work. I probably agree with you, but for some reason you're going against me. Because, uh, it's, yeah. It's, I remember at like the um, quarterfinal in like Bowling Green, like the fall of 2019 before the pandemic, I had mm-hmm. one judge. I had, I, so I had three judges because it was a quarterfinal round. And one of the judges told me, I wrote the IPDA constitution and you embody the very spirit of IPDA. Like it was, <laughs> it was, it was incredible. <laughs> like, and then another judge said you came off as rude as an, an as an asshole. So and then you know and like, so I won. Obviously, the judge that said I embodied the very spirit of IPDA. Probably voted for you. Yeah. Me the win, and the other judge said I was rude and an asshole. The other judge, the other judge said nothing about me being rude whatsoever. That's the other element of debate is is it's, uh, interpreting human behavior mm-hmm. is very um, subjective. Um, what is rude, you know, but debate, debaters can be very harsh people, you know, interrupting people. And there's also judges have different expectations on like, like when it's acceptable to interrupt someone, um, during the cross-examination period, a lot of judges saying, well, you as a cross-examiner, you control the situation. Once people, once your opponent has given you the answer, you you can say, all right, that's all I want to know. Move on. And then ask another question. And that's exactly what I did with that one round um, where the judge said it was rude and awful. Um, the judge is like, you cannot interrupt someone. But I think that's completely unreasonable because, frankly, like, you could, I could ask like, the question like, well, you, you state um, that the minimum wage uh, would um, decrease jobs. What do you think about that famous Card and Kruger study where the minimum wage increase increased jobs? And they say uh, – and they go on and say, well, that study is false. Um, and then like go, but they go on and on and on and on and on for the remainder of the, the, the and then you three, don't get any more questions and you don't get any more questions when all you wanted to know was whether they thought it was false or like, but, but you, 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 you would have asked you, what you really wanted to ask is like, well, on what basis did you think that study was false? You know, um, uh, any, it's just like, so you, you should be You're able to inter- that. You're very good at taking a uh, cross-examination question and turning it into as long as possible you can answer, which is a valid thing to do. But as long as the ability to cut someone off is like respected, like right. if you won't lose points because I'm not. Well, because I know a lot of judges don't respect that. That's just so you just it, you split it because it, it, in in our speech debate, it is about it is a competition about winning. And if you can do something that will paint your opponent in a bad light, do it. You know. Right. It, it's, yeah. it's either they cut you off and they look bad, or they don't cut you off and you take away the rest of their time. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, and yeah, and you also don't know what offends different judges too. Like things that you wouldn't even you wouldn't even think would offend a judge. For example, 
Um, there was one debate. I forget what the topic was. It might have had something to do. With, I think. It, I think the topic itself did have to do with marital cheating, right? And I was like giving a hypothetical. And I was and I was saying, well, I for, I, I forget what my argument was. I forget even what the topic was or what my position was. I think it was whether like it something about uh, something about how the partner responds to somebody when they cheat. But mm-hmm. I forget what it was. But, I, I just remember starting a hypothetical out with the sentence, so say that there was a man, and this man, um, you know, was, was, he, was, was in his 50s, and he was, in, in like, you know, and he was getting tired of his marriage, and his wife was old, and he had this young mistress comes into his life, and he goes and has, you know, I, I just bring, bring up the hypothetical, the right? Hypothetical, yeah. Um, to make a point, and I forget what even point I made, but my judge got so offended by that, and she wrote the note, like, <laughs> That, like, that's a terrible example, an old man cheating with a young woman. Why do you have to be so descriptive? That is so – and, like, I, I can almost tell, like, the woman herself was an old woman. Like, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> she might have gone through that experience herself. Like, that was <laughs> – like, the tone of what she wrote. Um, Probably hit like, home. Yeah. It felt really personal. It she felt personal, that. me giving that <laughs> specific anecdote. Um, uh, yeah, and so – that's it. Be careful with how you debate, and you have to be strategic, yeah. indeed. Um, it's, it's fun though. Yeah, it's yeah. fun, and it's a game. And like I said, it's not the best way to pursue truth. Mm-hmm. I think most of the time, a scientific or d- discussion-based way is how to pursue truth. You know, like I think one of the most important questions in all of knowledge pursuit is the question: What do I have to show you for you to disbelieve? Mm-hmm. Um, what comes to when somebody says, "Well, there's nothing you could show me to make me disbelieve," it's gotten to the point of um, you know religion, you know, because when people who believe in a god, nobody like says, "All right, you have to show me X, Y, Z, and I will stop believing in my god." That's not mm-hmm. how it works. Um, similarly, like when it comes to like different political questions, like what would I have to show you to make you? Um, believe that um, the stimulus uh, in 2008 improved the economy. And if somebody says that, nothing, well, then you're not an open-minded person, right? Yeah. But, and, you know, this, what would I have to show you to make me disbelieve, and what would you have to show me to make me disbelieve? This, like, sets a criteria for us to pursue a joint truth. Yeah. Um, versus debate, like we said, is not about joint truth. It's about two sides and one trying to dominate the other, and it's a game. It's a worthwhile game. It's a good help. It helps you learn. It helps to inform. It helps yeah. develop confidence. But it's not the best way to pursue truth. Yeah, I agree. Because uh, like the, the, the truth aspect of debate is basically here's a bunch of information both sides are giving, and you draw your own conclusion from it. While with discussion, the drawing conclusions from it is happening there. And it's a lot easier to follow along, and you are you as like an audience member, you don't have to actively think about things. You can just comprehend what they're saying. While with a debate, it is this point, this point, this point. Well, does this get rid of this? Does this get rid of this? Like, it, it's a lot of back and forth. And I think that uh, that concept of like, what uh, what can we I I show you to make you disbelieve? Like when when it comes to religion, because I also had a. When I went like when I was when I just do debates, uh, and this was a big part of like my growing aspect of my belief system and philosophy. Um, I did a lot of religious debates, and not necessarily religious debates, because 
it's a weird concept because when it comes to ontology and like the essence of being like what is there outside what was the first like metaphysics what is beyond that of perception when you look at the the, the ideas it is so complicated and wrapped up in can this even be proved and then it comes to the fact of when we're talking religion and we're talking the creation of a world and we're talking about science where there is no real explanation as to how it began it, there are theories but we cannot know what was before the big bang it is well, impossible even if you knew the thing mm -hmm. at the very end like um you have to question how does that thing get into existence right exactly i mean uh, uh, you yeah sorry yeah you <laughs> well, you first there's the saying that like in like catholic school that god always is, has been, and will be, you know, he is that base, but then that's something you just have to fundamentally accept that doesn't fundamentally make any sense, like, you know, like, what I'm, what I'm saying is that, like, there is a certain point at which things just exist, and they exist not for any other reasons but themselves. In the religious Catholic worldview, everything exists kind of out of God, right, outward. If, but that's not what I believe, but I mean, and so you have to ask, what's that base thing, right? There's these scientific laws that govern everything that exists, but is there anything behind those laws, or do those laws just exist, and that's it, that's the end? Or is – and also you have to ask, this is the theory of the multiverse. Are there is, – is all that exists subject to these laws? Are there yeah. other universes subject to different laws with different matter and things and so on and so forth? And I don't know if we can ever know this, the answer, because the other paradox that gets, comes into that is, like, let's say you can, you can meet God um, himself. He could talk to you. He could turn water into wine in front of you. Um, he could raise somebody from the dead in front of you. You know, how can you ever really know that all of that isn't a, sim a simulation, that you're living in the matrix? Yeah. Um, you can't, and that's what I was so interesting about the idea of the Truman Show, right? Is in the Truman Show, Truman like figures out everybody around him is an actor, and his whole life has been a TV show in which he's just thought he's lived in the real world, but he's lived in the world that's been created around him. But like, once he escapes from that world, can he trust the world that he escapes into? Can he trust anything ever again? No. Like, and I guess what I'm saying is that fundamentally. Not just as a human, but as anybody with a mind, um, in order to proceed forth into a reality, you have to assume certain things about that reality. Yeah. I assume you are conscious like me. You think like me. You feel mm. pain like me. Um, but I can't know that. Yeah. Um, you have to assume. And so fundamentally, there's just some things you cannot know um, by a feature by, – by, not just by a feature of you lacking um, – not like lacking knowledge or or brain bandwidth or capacity, but just by the whole condition of being itself. That even if you were a god and you knew everything, how did how could you possibly know that the everything that you know is everything? Mm -hmm. That there isn't some god beyond you that's greater than you that just hasn't showed up yet. Yeah, I, I like when it comes to stuff like that. Like I completely agree with everything you're saying, and that's something I wrestled with for a little bit. Like, uh, when I talked to, like, I went on a rant or, uh, against objectivists, and they're thinking, isn't Ayn Rand? Where, where Ayn Rand famously, when it comes to metaphysics, says there are objective things, which 
uh, I, as like someone who likes philosophy, just completely disagreed with and, like the the notion of what is outside of your own perception is so ridiculous to even think about because how do I perceive that which is outside perception and how can I know something without outside perception without perception and it's just it's this weird paradox but and then even with like uh, cosmological ideas like when it comes to uh, believing in something like when it comes to uh, faith like we have these laws of the universe and it, it's actually it's extremely um, uh, informative when I when I listen to those that are religious that do talk about why they believe a God exists. It's it's extremely logical. We have these presuppositions, and those presuppositions are there's a thing called the law of causality, where like something will always cause another, and then they are able to go well because something will always cause another. We have this in our universe. The universe had to have been caused by something, so there needs to be something that is outside these laws of cause, these scientific laws, and that would be a God. And with, under that presupposition, they would be correct. If the law of causality was a true, like it was a truth statement, where that they could, that, that is applied to literally everything in the universe, then they are right, and the universe had to have been created by something outside of those laws, which would be a God. But when it comes to it, is most people uh, take these like scientific truths as, as truths, like the law of causality, gravi gravity, like these things are taken as truths. I'm not saying like these aren't truths, but actually like when I did a little delve into quantum physics, which was for religious, re religious debate reasons, like I found out that quantum physics unironically disproves gravity, but it's such a minimalistic disproval that gravity is still used in every single computation that has to do with physics, everything. It is like on the quantum particle scales. It is so small, it doesn't matter at all, but the theory of Einstein's gravity is actually wrong. They, it, it messes up in calculations when you go down to the It doesn't level. apply at the tiniest level. Exactly. So like, well, because of that, we know, holy crap, this is wrong, but it doesn't matter because it still applies to everything that matters to us. But in the quantum level, it's wrong. So we have gravity, this this fundamental truth that we took about our universe, and it's wrong, people assume that that is impossible. So for the law of causality, it is 100% possible that there exists a particle that literally has no cause and has always existed and is the foundation of everything, and that's how the universe was made. But it's, it's, it's like, and it's also possible that the law of causality is real and there is a God. It's a possibility. So when it comes to ontological arguments, because it is just unknown we just have to we have to take the agnostic position and if you ever want to talk with someone who is an atheist or someone who is religious and like the, the question comes not uh, why am i correct the, the correct position is why are you correct because the correct position should be i don't know i don't know this position and that's why when it comes to religion when it comes to people that espouse actually on campus the other day i had a conversation with someone who was preaching about why being gay is a sin, having a child out of wedlock is a sin. Like, I had a conversation with them and they attempted to show me why God was real. And I was like, yeah. if you are so confident to take this position that God is real and he has these rules, then you better have an explanation for why he's real. Because if you don't, you're espousing this hate-filled things with no reason whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you do, exactly, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You have to have more because I mean, if you're just basing all this in this faith, you you're hurting a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know. And then because it does hurt. Restricting homosexuality hurts, and you can't yeah. get around that reality. Um, there's there's bullets you have to bite when it so it's like if you are okay with having a faith and having that faith dictate what you do, and you believe that is a valid uh, response, 
then you also have to acknowledge that if somebody came to you and said, my faith is to kill people, you have to say that is a valid response. Just logically processing the fact that you believe faith is a valid reason to uh, have morality. To call somebody- and, yeah, and to have morality and, call, and do things that you would otherwise perceive as damaging mm-hmm. had it not been your, for your faith. Because all humans can recognize damage and hurt. Mm-hmm. And if you look deep enough into what it's like for a gay person not to be able to have gay relationships or to be stigmatized for having said relationships, you understand intuitively as a human that causes a great deal of, of hurt. Imagine yeah. if you could never have a heterosexual relationship and everybody banned you from it. Like, mm-hmm. it's the same experience. Um, yeah. And so it's just like you, you either – you can't get – there are some Christians who, like, believe that, like, gay – like, my mother like, – like, well, like, my mother would believe that, like, you know, gay people should become priests and live celibate lives. You can live a happy life as a celibate life. I'm not saying priests don't live happy lives as celibate lives. A lot of them get messed up in that, though, but some don't. And some, I think, do achieve true happiness, but not all people can do that, yeah. um, achieve that level of happiness and celibacy. Um, and so a lot of people just feel pain. They feel longing that never gets fulfilled. And so you're, you're doing all of this on this promise of heaven that you don't know if it's real um, I, I mean, I just want to clarify. I'm fine with religion. You can have you can have a religion. Yeah. And you can have as much beliefs as you want. But when the problem comes to me is when you have a religion and you try to enforce that religion onto others when they disagree. Right. You can believe being gay is a sin and they will go to hell. But if you go to somebody else and and attempt to tell them this thing that will cause them harm, that's where I would draw the line and say, believe whatever you want. Because un- understandably, there is no correct answer, or at least none that we can point to right now. So believe whatever you want. But once you start to take that belief that does not have a foundation and it starts to impact others, that's when it becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When it causes da- hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, I always never like the argument for like, people who pro- – like I'm you know, relatively pro-choice. I mean it's a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I don't know. I just don't want to get into that issue right now. Yeah. But um, – you know, like when pro-choice people say, like, "Oh, banning abortion is like is 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 not, is, ba- is is violating the, the the separation of church and state," I would say, "Well, no, that's like 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 making a restriction based off of a moral belief. Your moral beliefs come from religion. Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing as melding religion and state." Yeah, in my yeah. opinion. You you can have uh, yeah. morals from religion and make laws about those morals. That's not meshing church and state. Meshing church, it, yeah. yeah. Meshing church and state is saying that which is Catholic is correct, and that that's that's meshing church and state. You know, precisely. I think, well, yeah, we agree. Like as we've talked about before, we agree on a lot of things. We do. Uh, so I think we're getting toward the end of uh, our podcasting time here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to ask maybe as a last question for people who are afraid to debate. Kind of like don't like debating. Um, I guess debate's not for everyone, just like golfing isn't for everyone. But for people who are on the fence about debating or would consider debating, what what's like the selling point? Why why would you what's the what what does somebody have to gain um, from more people debating, whether competitively or online against neo Nazis? <laughs> yeah, uh, for me, it's a it is a undisputed just overall good that I could ever have experienced when it comes to debating. And I think the main off-put of debating is nerves about being incorrect and uh, just 
the non-wanted confrontation and just being worried about being wrong. I have been debating for not necessarily in competitions, but just in general sense for like four or five years now. And um, the way that you have to come at an outlook for it is basically, it is fine to be wrong. I feel like you would agree with this. It is fine to be wrong, but you can be this, you can go, when I went into like these neo-Nazi discords, they, they said stuff that honestly, I had no rebuttal for. So what I did was I went into what they said, I researched it, and I found out, wow, this, this is actually wrong, and they're wrong. And I, and the amount wow. I've d done that throughout my, it, like, uh, amount of time debating has it, gotten it, to It's easy to lie with statistics. Yes, um, very easy. You know, what they you say, like, black people have lower IQ than white people, but that, mm -hmm. that, that also doesn't account, like, you control for income and wealth, mm -hmm. that goes away. Um, it was just like, you have different education levels. Um, and there's that, I don't know, and yeah, it, well, it's also like the whole thing too, is like, let's say races did have differences, like, yeah, just, should you still not, you should still treat people as individuals, like, is it okay because there's white people who are dipshits and white people who are smart, we discriminate from, segregate, deny rights to, like, mm -hmm. the white people who are dumb just on the basis that they're dumb, well, mm -hmm. no, and there are clearly brilliant black people, brilliant white people, really dumb black people, really dumb white people. Um, and like, who cares what the averages are? Treat people as individuals and don't, exactly. like it doesn't even matter. That's the mm -hmm. other argument too. But it's, what you were saying? Yeah, it's the, like, uh, like to go on to that just a little bit, like the idea of, and this is what I like to do nowadays when I go into these uh, places. Like I talked to this guy who is a like avowed like race realist. He says a uh, race mixing is harmful and he will never do it. And I asked him these questions and he stopped talking to me because I asked him, we got to this idea of like, why do your genetics matter so much? Because to me, when someone says, I want high IQ babies and I'm like, okay, but don't, do you, do you think like, have do you think having like a high iq is like valuable in the sense of like if you need to pursue it and they're like yes i'm like and for this guy it was genetics it was i need my my child to have my genetics I'm like what's the difference between having an adopted son and a biological son he said well one is my son the other is not and i was like okay but what's the meaningful difference what's why like to me a son is not someone who has the same genes as you but somebody who like in, in like a fatherly figure sense, somebody who raises you, who teaches you values, who upbrings you, guides you down a path that they believe is like correct. Like that is what a son and a father like relation, and that doesn't need genes. When you look like the difference, like why genes matter so much, they, they, they really don't in most instances. Like and also, genes are, yeah, yeah. And also smarter people are more miserable oftentimes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, like, well, yeah. Uh, especially like, there's a weird dichotomy of like, uh, obviously high IQ is better than low IQ and I just completely disagree. Uh, there's a lot of things like, I actually just took a class on emotional intelligence, which I thought was probably BS. And it's actually not, I actually really like the concept and I feel like it, it gets overshadowed a lot and just how much variety exists in a human where IQ doesn't necessarily, it, it, it is helpful. But it doesn't matter to make you a happy being on, on the broad scheme of things. If you have a, a 10 point differential in IQ, it's not going to matter that much in like how much like fun you can have, how happy you can be, the life you pursue. Uh, it, it, it doesn't like you have people like uh, a fun thing I like to bring up is like Hikaru Nakamura, if you know who that is. He's like he was widely regarded as the second best chess player to ever exist or not to ever exist, at least in this time compared to Magnus Carlsen. He's insane. He has like an average IQ, 
you can do amazing things. You can be great at what you do without a huge like IQ and stuff like that. And it's just, it's, 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 it's fun to look into that and be like, yeah, maybe for pattern recognition, it would be more helpful to have it, but it is by no means a deterrent as to what people can do. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Good. Yeah, but yeah, and so that's that's that, that's, that's that's why you should debate because of IQ. Because no. of IQ, I think you could just debate because it's fun and it yeah, makes you it makes you un like we said earlier. It can make you confident and just fearless against against failure and being wrong. Yeah. I am no longer afraid of being wrong. If you could write, somebody could write the the biggest book in I don't know. Like I'm not like obviously I have certain values, right? It's hard to convince people on certain values. Like values on risk taking, right? When it comes to, and you know, it's like people could have this. There are different. There are subjects to which there truly are no resolutions. Um, like there's subjects like you know, like IQ. There's a resolution that it there there is a scale, um, and we can control for other things that aren't race to determine like the specific effect of race on IQ. We could we can measure that, um, but like when it comes to is it right? to lock people down uh, during a pandemic? Is it right to ban a wedding during a pandemic? Yeah. At the end of the day, you're weighing the risk of death and disease spread against the joy of a wedding. I've talked about this in multiple podcast episodes, but it's there, I don't think there's, a, there's an, a, an objective answer. There is just, there is just different values mm -hmm. um, to those questions, mm -hmm. I think. So like, when yeah. it comes to like utilitarianism, there is like you can point to one and say this is the correct choice, and but then there's also stoicism, and this is the correct choice, and all these things. But and uh, when it comes, it's, there is no objective. This is correct. It is up to the interpreter. It is up to the person doing it about what they believe is correct. And more often than not, that's going to be fine. Uh, but when it comes to like why debate, like a comp the confidence is a huge one, and just I feel like to me, knowledge is such an important thing of knowing what because I. I, I the con the comprehension of like politics isn't important to me, so I'm not going to learn about it. I, I I I have this like sense of people matter, uh, because I just think the way I feel is applied to every other individual in this entire world that is like a, a conscious being. You know, they have feelings, they are hurt. Like what you said, we assume they have consciousness. They are almost the exact same as me, except they grew up in a different environment. That is how I like to think of, and I just think of if I can make if I, if I want to be happy. My happiness is the exact same as your happiness. My happiness, is no one's is more than the other. So when it comes to politics and the biggest way to impact happiness and how people feel on like a, a, a broad level, um, knowing about topics is I feel like so incredibly important. And that is why I like to debate. Uh, it's fine to be wrong. It is fine to go into a debate, get your ass kicked and think about why, what did I do wrong? What, what was he correct on? What was I correct on? And where could I have done better? And I think that's the most important part, the self-reflection that it teaches you and then just the confidence it gives you to be able to talk about issues that actually matter, in my opinion, when it comes to things that uh, will affect others, that that actually matters. When you hear someone being bigoted, when you hear someone uh, talking about communism is better than uh, capitalism, when you hear about all these different things, you know, you can have a valid opinion about what is the best and just having that will make you a better person it'll impact how you make decisions and i feel like it's just overall better it'll humble you um and i think there's nothing better like, like i think it's a really good thing to, to 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 feed someone is the knowledge that they can be wrong and wrong mm -hmm. often 
I think yeah. debate can, and that you can still be confident and still keep on fighting. I think that's the beauty in debate. Yeah. I think the uh, a good I could you can mix a, a a quote in that's like a little bit modified. You know, I don't fear the man who's won a hundred debates. Uh, I fear the man who's uh, lost a hundred debates but has learned from each one. You know, kind of like a, the punch and kick one. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a good quote. But with that. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Thanks for having me. It was great. It, it's a pleasure. I love having these conversations with you. It's good we can record it and yeah. share it and yeah. preserve we just, it. We do this in regular uh, regular day, and then we get to actually share it, which I think is pretty cool. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. If you like this podcast, you can support it via Patreon or the Anchor app, depending on whether you're watching this on YouTube or Spotify. There's links below. You can click and support me if you want to. Nobody has yet, but that's okay. I still like doing this. I have other sources for money, but if you want me to, like I said, if you want to encourage me to do this more, like after I graduate from Kent, I'm going to need some more money. Um, so if you want to just nah, spread the you love. Gotta, you got to start shilling. No, Ben is going to die unless you give him money. I'm going to okay? threaten to kill myself. <laughs> oh, unless, right. In a video game. He's joking. Oh, but it was a joke. He yeah. will starve to death unless you uh, give him uh, Patreon money. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, come on, you're a capitalist, right? You gotta capitalist. Gotta yes, shilling. Yeah. All right, and with that, thanks. Have, okay, have a, have a good one, society. Thanks for listening. Yeah.